Josh, I haven't seen either of these movies, and this is your friend, so you introduce <laughs> the show. <laughs> what yes. a way to come at it. I love it. Welcome back to Nashville CA, your bi-movie, bi-weekly podcast by two dudes, uh, one who lives in Nashville, one who lives in California. That's the CA, if you haven't caught on yet. I'm the Nashville portion. Josh Akis with me, as always, is Sean from CA. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm good. My last name is Perry. I don't get why you get a last name and I don't. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> uh, I didn't know if you want to maintain an- anonymity after all this time or what. I mean, I said my last name on the very first episode <laughs> when we were very dry and serious. That's true. But also, do you know my last name? Yeah, I remember it. Okay, good. Yeah, and I what, see it every it? week when I send you uh, files too. Do you know our guest name? Uh, I know our guest. I I don't know his middle name. It's but- D. <laughs> Yeah, it's duh. <laughs> Dylan Irwin, I, I believe, is how you pronounce it. Bingo. I think it you is, got that spot on it. It is I, Dylan Irwin. I guys, I just realized something. During your intro, I'm like right in the middle of you two. Arguably. Yeah. Wouldn't you say Oklahoma is kind of right in the middle of like right in between? So if you all wanted to like meet halfway in the middle, mm-hmm. you would meet most likely. At like the on cue by my house, <laughs> not, not, not my house. Like at the on cue by my house. That's uh-huh. awesome. We gotta do that. Even I mean, I'll I'll get there sooner rather than later. <laughs> I love that. You see, it's because of our state's <laughs> history. That actually means cheater, but it's okay because we adopted it. <laughs> it's better than being a, a Hoosier, which is what I was born as, and uh, because what the hell is that? It's know, Gene Hackman bringing a bunch of ragtag young mm. boys together to become a dominant basketball force. That's what a Hoosier is. I need those movies to make a comeback. Like the 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 down on their luck, you know, Bad News Bears, Replacements, Hoosiers, sports movies. Heck, maybe we get animals involved. That's, that's really most, what... <laughs> the most recent one we got was Ben Affleck being an alcoholic. And by the end of the oh. movie, spoiler alert... Spoiler alert. He's just kicked off the team and he's not even there when they play because he's still a fucking alcoholic. Like, that's just a. I, it's th- like the anti Walter Matthau from. Um, Bad News from Bears. From Bad News Bears. Yeah. I, I agree. That was a very strange direction for uh, Zack Snyder to take the Justice League, um, <laughs> having Batman drunk and kicked off the team. But. Um, Guys, I'm really excited to talk about these movies today. I'm so excited. I'm so excited because Sean hadn't seen... Have you had you seen either of them? No. Oh, oh wild. Oh. I've never... I've heard of Something Wicked This Way comes because there's a band called Iced Earth with, I believe, an album titled after this uh, story by Bradbury. And Sleepy Hollow came out in 99... Mm-hmm. Which yes. means I was 13 years old and still a big weenie about horror movies and thought this would be too scary for me oh, to watch. Oh, man. Oh, man. It, Conquered some demons today. You know, that that's, that's truly what, I mean, I, I can't speak for the show. I'm nothing but an avid listener, but I think that's what this show is. It's about overcoming fears. Um, and I'm so glad that, that, that my little tiny choice could help you overcome your fear. 
overcoming my fears of watching old movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so, uh, Josh, I know you and I started with Sleepy Hollow, mm-hmm. and Dylan, I think you watched Something Wicked This Way Comes first. Yes. Which way do you think we should start with these? Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm, it's up to you all. I mean, we can go in chronological order and do um, 84, I think it was, was, no, 83, 82. 83. When was 83? We could do Something Wicked first, and then... Sleepy Hollow, because it's also like one is guessing the existence of the other. Something wicked this way comes. What is it? It's Sleepy Hollow that's coming next. Or um, <laughs> we could do like the order in the timeline because Sleepy Hollow took place in 1799 and we could do it that way. Um, I think we'd be best off going chronologically. Okay. Sick. That means we are starting with Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, the, from the Ray Bradbury story, directed by Jack Clayton. And it was indeed from 1983, when I was but a mere, what, almost four years old when this movie came out. So I definitely did not see it on release. I don't think Sean and I existed when this movie came out. No. This... Uh, I did not. I was born in August of 86. I think... This, my, my parents got married this year, so I was like, the potential was there, I guess. But I have something sort of kind of or kind of sort of special that I want to do before we mm-hmm. begin something wicked this way comes. I okay. kind of want to set the mood a little bit. Oh, yeah. If, if, if okay. I may. I, uh, I said this to you off mic, and by said, I mean said it with my fingers via text, but I'm a really big Ray Bradbury fan. Um, mm-hmm. I got into Bradbury hardcore like two years ago which I know seems a little bit sophomoric to not get into Bradbury until your 30s. But I read, like, no joke, 200 of his short stories in one year, and I'm all in. But one of my favorite things that he ever wrote is a short story collection called October Country. And there's an epigraph to October Country that I want to read. It's super short, but it gets me in the mood, and I think it would get everyone in the mood to talk about this flick. And so this is the epigraph from... The October Country by Ray Bradbury. October Country. That country where it is always turning late in the year. That country where the hills are fog and the rivers are mist, where noons go quickly, dusks and twilights linger, and midnights stay. That country composed in the main of cellars, subcellars, coal bins, closets, attics, and pantries faced away from the sun. That country whose people are autumn people, thinking only autumn thoughts, whose people passing in the night on the empty walks sound like rain. I love that. That's excellent. That is beyond excellent. Also, I didn't know where the autumn people phrase came from. Um, I've just been listening to on my commute. Um, Harvest Home by Thomas Tryon. Mm -hmm. And he makes reference to the autumn people within. So that's, that's astonishing synchronicity there. Mm -hmm. I love it. That was, that was really good. I love, I love that epigraph. I feel like I have to read it. I mean, I feel like it, it doesn't take long to read, so it's not a big deal to say, I try and read it like every year when it starts to get crisp outside. 
but mm-hmm. uh, m- much like this movie really kind of captured that cos i feel like i think i said to you all in a, in a in a message that this movie captures bradbury so well because that's when i say that that's the bradbury i'm talking about just that mm-hmm. you know cold bins facing away from the sun it's cold it's winter they're autumn rain people like that guy so this movie has some of the most autumnal and fall shots I've seen in a while with like the, the reddest trees <laughs> I have, like imaginable <laughs> dropping leaves everywhere. And right now, the fact that this movie takes place in October and walking around town where I am right now, we have some really red trees that are just dropping their leaves and fall is in full force right now. It was, it was like really perfect timing to, to watch this movie. Dylan, the only other Bradbury I, I recall reading was the Martian Chronicles mm. in like seventh grade. And I remember very little from those. Does that compare well with this? So here's the thing about Bradbury that is fascinating. He is an amazing, like... I call them nostalgia writers because it's not like you write Neil Gaiman kind of does the same thing where it's not quite horror, not quite fantasy, just nostalgia writing. So Bradbury is a nostalgia writer, but then also he is a stellar horror writer and he is a stellar sci-fi writer. And so mm-hmm. to compare kind of the October country and something wicked to Martian Chronicles, it's, it's difficult because Bradbury almost puts on a different persona when he writes sci-fi. Like the quality of storytelling is still there, but you know, whenever you pick up something like the Martian Chronicles, it feels like you're in the best episode of '60s Star Trek TOS that you've seen ever. Um, like the, the has he he writes the kind of sci-fi that has the solid philosophical underpinnings because you know a lot like how the best horror sort of is 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 about the monsters that we all have inside of us. You know, the best sci-fi is about what it means to be human in the face of all of that which is inhuman. And Bradbury really kind of captures both of those. And so it's the same but different. It's the most lawyer answer I could think about. <laughs> um, so I had, I've read a few short stories. I read Fahrenheit. Um, I read Martian Chronicles. I, I read like 20 pages of Fahrenheit years ago and... It's still on my shelf. I think I moved or something meant to get back to it. Was enjoying it. I thought you were going to say I burned it. it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's that's a funny link. When we read Fahrenheit, it was, I believe, my freshman year of, of high school. And I had this honors English with um, Mr. Donald Lonto, uh, who was a fantastic English teacher. He was the first uh, person who really let me do video essays. Uh, instead of like turn in um, regular assignments. So as long as I wrote a script for it, even if I was compiling things from other sources, he would let me turn the whole thing in. Um, When we started Fahrenheit, we came into the room and he, he was in character. He was very, I mean, he's, I haven't talked to him in years, but he's still around. Um, But he was very affable just the the gentlest man we came into school that day and he's very stern he's got like this different affect on and from his podium he starts speaking in this like authoritarian manner telling us about uh how stories are corrupting our brains 
and how they can get you to do things and they can get you to believe things that you otherwise wouldn't believe and stories can change your mind. And, uh, it, by the end of it, he's tearing pages out of a book and throwing them into a burning trash can at his feet. Uh, and that was his introduction to the world of Fahrenheit. That's what he wanted to get us into. And it was just like, Oh, Oh yes. I'm, I'm all in on this. Uh, That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a great teacher right there. Oh yeah, I had one teacher named Mr. Harvey. He was a physics teacher. Took him two years advanced physics in high school, and every single day, nearly every single day, he would have a story to tell us, which he would then turn where it's a story about a mathematical problem that somebody solved, or a a problem with a rocket that a NASA engineer figured out. And he would always end up with saying, like, they're your age and they're they're out there doing it. So so go do it. And, and then and then he would start the lesson. And every day was an inspirational lesson like that applied to real life situations. And he was just he's the best teacher still around. I miss him. I was never close enough with him to, like, actually contact him. But just the best teacher. That's awesome. That's so my other connection for Bradbury would be um, he wrote several episodes for Alfred Hitchcock presents. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple of his stories have been used in uh, Twilight Zone episodes, namely uh, I Sing the Body Electric Mm -hmm. uh, and the elevator from the 80s version. Uh, And then I think uh, in my text earlier, I talked about that they used several of his stories or his scripts as radio dramas, like in the fifties. And I think uh, there will come soft rains uh, and the Velt, which I think also is in the illustrated man. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? I I think so that the Velt is one of his, if I remember correctly, one of the good examples of him just killing it as a horror writer. Mm -hmm. And you guys have experience. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. Do you guys have experience with, dramatic audio or horror audio dylan i know kind of specifically i listened to your um the night journal what what, what i'm sorry i'm blanking on the specific nightgate, name nightgate journal. nightgate journal nightgate journal which is so atmospheric and so cool to listen to especially this time of year if you can get yourself in an out like a backyard with a fire pit <laughs> listening to the nightgate journal narrated by dylan it's it's Awesome. It just sets the mood. But that's kind of the only like radio play kind of experience that I have. Do you have experience with that in your past? Uh, with listening, I do. Um, not with like performing them. Except the no, one no. I, I, I'm asking listening. Oh yeah, no. I um. So kind of the first that I really got into were the Lord of the Rings audio dramas um, that the BBC put out. And I think Ian Holm actually play, who plays Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings movies, Peter Jackson movies, actually played Frodo in the audio dramas, um, which oh, is which is really cool. And the guy that's a who, nice little connection. I think that the guy who did that, I forgot his name. It's not. Oh, it'll come to me. But whoever produced those also did um, Gormenghast by Mervyn Peake, which. Uh, Gormenghast is is so good, and it was written around the same time as Lord of the Rings, 
but it's um it's a very good sprawling gothic trilogy of novels um that i highly recommend you you pick up there they're evergreen but they're especially fun to read around this time of year but aside from that um neil gaiman has been really killing it with audio dramas recently um back in the day they had neverwhere that was an audio drama with like james mcavoy um and the on the lead and then they did a whole bunch of his other short stories but um actually within the last couple weeks i think volume three or act three rather of the sandman audio dramas uh came out on audible and i sandman is my favorite written work or favorite work of fiction or whatever you want to call it of all time and to which my wife will always say wait like more than lord of the rings yes like (laughs) more than lord of the rings the sandman is a masterpiece and um this third act that just came out I think covers it's going to be four total acts if I remember correctly. So it it covers the latter half, um, the first part of the latter half of the seventy five issue run. But uh, but Josh knows that I'm a big Sandman guy, and so he 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 can tell you that I'm not exaggerating when I say it's the best. (laughs) That's uh, I don't know if we've talked about it, but my first tattoo was the key to the gates of hell. Uh Uh, Yeah, that's my uh, my bona fides, and I want to actually finish out. Now that I've gotten into more illustrative tattoos, um, mm. because it's just that one I wanted very iconic, and I had thought that I would only go with stark black and white for a long time, but now I'm like rethinking that, mm. and so I kind of want the rest of that uh, leg <laughs> finished mm. up with Sandman art now. Oh, this this is my Sandman leg. Yes, exactly. I love I've got it. my samurai arm, my my Sandman leg. Um, but did you listen to snow glass apples and, or, and murder mystery? They came out as, uh, uh, an audio drama two pack back. In I the did day. not listen to those, but I love the snow glass apples story. Mm-hmm. I have, no, I don't have that one. I have sleeper in the spindle, the illustrated kind of children's book version okay. of it. Um, but snow glass apples is good, dude. Uh, do you know what murder mystery is? I think. In my heart, I do, um, but I can't remember <laughs> off the top. I know because like I've I've read his bibliography, I think two or three times, and so it mm-hmm. sounds familiar. I just can't remember if that's like the Cthulhu one, or or what it is. Which one is that? Uh, it, it's about uh, a murder in heaven. Oh, okay, I remember it. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, no, because he did like he did a really bizarre. He likes to do that, and that's what I love about him as a writer. And and he's influenced so much by Bradbury that I feel like this is a totally chill line of mm-hmm. line to, road to go down. But like, what I love about him as a writer is he takes an idea and he twists it just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the it's the murder in heaven. But then also he did the Sherlock Holmes story where they were doing it was a Sherlock Holmes mystery within the Lovecraft kind of kind of mythos, yeah. the Cthulhu mythos. And, um, oh my gosh, but now that I know that that exists, who did they get to, like, who did they cast in that? I, I don't remember because I literally, I just thought of it when I was going to the 12 hours of terror the other night to meet up with Pant, um, with Russell, who's been on our show before. Um, it just hit me. I was like, I haven't listened to that in 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I like checked to see if it was on audible and there it was. Uh, so I think that's going to be maybe my next credit, even though it's, you know, it's pretty short, 
because it's just too, um, I don't remember who produced them. I don't remember who's in it, but they're fantastic. I need to check those out. You guys like Pawnee Pool, the movie? Very much so. I It either started as an audio play or vice versa, but there is an audio play version of it that's about an hour, hour 15 long. It's, it's shorter than the movie, but I listened to it one year driving home for Christmas, um, driving home in my car, and it, it was fun to listen to. Oh, nice. I want to I listen to more stuff. I tried, there was one, like, zombie fiction uh, we're alive podcast that i tried listening to years ago mm-hmm. and it just it reminded me josh you remember the scene in american movie where mark it's like the beginning of the movie and mark has all those amateur actors together and everyone is hamming it up in their yes. own special way and none of it feels cohesive that was my experience with this like post-apocalypse zombie radio drama show I yeah just, i couldn't latch on to it that's and if it's the same show, that show went on for years and is a huge undertaking. Um, for me, I always listen to them like the old timey radio dramas. The there was a science fiction one called uh, X minus one, and that's where some of these Bradbury stories were were used. Uh, and then, of course, the Sherlock Holmes mysteries uh, and a lot of there was a kind of a noir influenced uh show called yours truly johnny dollar about an insurance title i know it's so good that's because johnny anything sounds good johnny dollar johnny guitar uh johnny radio johnny johnny mechanic johnny on the spot (laughs) johnny anything anything sounds good with johnny it's a cheap name (laughs) my my dad (laughs) thanks you for that (laughs) Oh my god. No, I whenever I listen to, to like audio dramas and stuff, there's a part of me like in the back of my head that's like, this is how my ancestors consumed media. This is so yeah. cool. <laughs> but like I remember um just briefly dipping into personal experience um for no other reason than, than to, to illustrate and not to hype. But whenever I was writing what became the Nightgate Journal, I remember something I couldn't stop thinking about was um Orson Welles, when he put on such a convincing audio drama that he convi- like that people thought that aliens were actually invading Earth, and so I thought about like because I don't know if I if I've told you all this, but when I originally wrote Nightgate, I wrote it as a series of blog entries on my personal Tumblr, <clears throat> and what I would do is I would post them, and they just slowly got more and more crazy, and at one point, kind of right before they they really broke off and people realized it was fake. Um, my wife, Leslie was getting text messages from friends and family saying, I think you all need to get out of that house. I'm really worried. I have a bad feeling. We've been praying for you and we feel like there's an evil in that house. And so I was sitting there and I was like, Oh my God, it's working. And then the next, the next one was like, you know, and then a portal opened up or something like that. And they're like, Oh, okay. It's fake. But like, I had to tell like older members of my family, like, no guys, it's fake. I'm not actually finding a journal soaked in blood in my house. Don't worry about it. But, um, <laughs> but that's the one thing that you can get or that you could get as a possibility in a world where everything was on the radio, like where, where radio dramas were the things. Because you can't really have, I guess you sort of could with like a found footage type horror movie or something like that. But 
oh, I just, it would be so much fun to live during the time period where Orson Welles was doing those broadcasts. So I will say, I, I've been listening to some more Audible stuff lately, and I just listened to the first book in the Expanse series, Ooh, which was a sci-fi, cool. and then I think Amazon picked it up. And just reading, listening to this book being told to me, in order to make this movie and make it properly would cost like $400 million. <laughs> I know they made it into a TV show, but the fact that they you can just put that shit in a book for free <laughs> and just let the mind do all of that work. And I... Some t there's something about sometimes just having a story told to me that activates a different part of my brain versus reading. And when I can key in on a narrator who I really, really like, mm -hmm. it, it, it completely changes my perception of that story. Yeah. Um, I, so, okay. Do you have a favorite narrator? Can you name a narrator or a work that they have done that would be iconic for you or a coic to, to use the term. I don't want to say like Dylan's my favorite, but his Nightgate journals, <laughs> his sound design is what makes those things like That's... the writing's good, but the sound design along with your buddy, whoever composed the weird noises and everything that happened are really good. Others for like Will Graham reads a lot of Stephen King stuff. And I know we've had we've talked about him on the podcast mm -hmm. with Mothman Prophecies and not Will Graham. Oh my God, Will, Will, Will Patton. Patton. Will Gra everyone fucking talks about Manhunter so much around <laughs> me, but I'll Francis <laughs> Will Patton. And I I just I keep that Southern accent that he has. I I just love it. Um, I also listen to Claire Danes narrate. Um. The, the Handmaid's Tale. And Ooh. that was excellent. She did a wonderful performance of that. And that's just examples where then, when I listen to those old-timey recordings, where it's like, a very staunch Englishman who reads a book like this, and just like, oh no, <laughs> I can't get into this. You gotta perform it. It's, I mean, I, so I grew up listening to the Rob Inglis um, audiobooks for Lord of the Rings. And I recently picked up the, and I mean, I liked them. They were all that we had, though, but it was kind of like, you know, that Bilbo was a hobbit who lived in the Shire, kind of like that. But right. then recently, I picked up The Hobbit and All the Lord of the Rings, narrated by Andy Serkis. And it's Ooh. so good. Like, guys, his Gollum voice is really good for some reason. Um, <laughs> but then, aside from him, hands down, my favorite person to listen to read a book is Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman has one of the most aurally pleasing voices um, I've ever had the pleasure of listening to. But aside from, aside from that, if you are into fantasy at all, you have probably crossed paths with uh, Michael Kramer and Kate Redding. They're a husband and wife team, and they did all of The Wheel of Time, um, all of Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson, all of the Stormlight Archive, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But, you know, those are tomes. Those are like Kill the Cat big books of, in all of those series. And so, you know, when I say I've spent time with them, it's like 60 hours per book. So I feel like I have right. to say that I like them because, but, um, <laughs> but honestly. Dylan, have you ever listened, speaking of Gaiman, uh, he was friends with Harlan Ellison. Have you ever listened to anything that he narrated? No. Oh my gosh. What? I'll, I'll, what I have a whole collection that Josh 
found for me after I was a collection that I bought on Audible and then Audible dumped it. Do not buy don't trust anything that you buy on a digital platform. Please, people, if you would love something that you think you own digitally, find a way to get that file locally on your hard drive or, God forbid, buy physical media. <laughs> but Guys, clouds break I up. Lost, I lost access to these Harlan Ellison narrated stories, and Josh was able to find them for me. And the guy reads like a lunatic, and I love it. And it changes his <laughs> stories entirely, and his voice sounds like whiskey, and it's gravelly, and it's up here, and he goes up and down, and then he gets really fast, and he starts to go, and he starts to lose out of breath. Okay, I'm here for And it. then there's a long pause, and then he keeps going. It's so good. Oh, I, I just love his style. It's so over the top. The smell of... I heard myself shriek, and the hinges of my jaws ached. I scuttled across the floor, across the cold metal with its endless lines of rivets on my hands and knees, the smell gagging me, filling my head with a thunderous pain that sent me away in horror. I fled like a cockroach across the floor and out into the darkness, that something moving inexorably after me. The others were still back there, gathered around the firelight, laughing, laughing, their hysterical choir of insane giggles rising up into the darkness like thick, many-colored wood smoke. I went away quickly. I went away quickly. I went away quickly and hid. The, the last thing that I'll say about audiobooks, specifically because you you mentioned something going crazy, I found... I, I try and read James Joyce slowly and intentionally, and I just haven't really had the time or inclination to read Finnegan's Wake. I, I read Ulysses a couple years ago, and I loved it. Finnegan's Wake is a whole different beast um, because it's not necessarily English. But but I found an audiobook version of it, and it is the most Looney Tunes thing in a good way that I have ever heard. And there's like one specific clip where... If you read the book, the word is just like a whole bunch of consonants put together. It's like a made up, like just bizarre word. This guy reads it and sounds everything out perfectly. And it is the most nutty thing I've ever heard. Um, so I recommend that Finnegan's Wake audiobook. I don't remember who did it. It's probably God, but it was amazing. <laughs> uh, I wish that they had audiobook versions of his, uh, the old timey version of Sexting. That he did with his lady love. I miss her arse, which was full of farts. Because the guy ha has to be an Irish guy that does it. Like, uh -huh. hello, my name is Craig. I'm going to read you the letters by James Joyce to his wife, Frances. Oh, I miss you. I miss you, Fanny. So full of farts. It's... <laughs> by the way, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, what are they talking about? Those are called queefs. I know. Right? Pause. <laughs> pause the podcast. Google James Joyce erotic letters. Read a couple and then come back. Boom. There. Wasn't that crazy? Isn't he a great guy? It's really nice to see someone love his wife that way and be open about it. Someone's got to introduce this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've never seen this shit before. Josh, this was your idea, right? For this pairing? Yes. You guys have both seen this. I've never seen this. Please, you two introduce this. Something Wicked This Way comes. The movie, not the audiobook. Go. <laughs> so, uh, my first uh, encounter with this was actually at... Okay. My paternal grandfather um, had a, a first family 
uh, and then got a divorce and then married my grandmother. There was a point in time where we tried to connect with my dad's half siblings. So we went to their house and I distinctly remember the, the choice was between something wicked this way comes or a, a videotape of a Christian comedian, a mid eighties <laughs> Christian comedian. <laughs> and I was like, let's do the spooky one. And we sat there on the floor of this uh, single wide trailer. I can say that with some level of disdain, having grown up in a double wide. So, you know, we were <laughs> an entire class above. Double the pleasure, uh, double the fun. Yeah. Uh, and it was just the, the parents were outside talking. Um, I think sharing a few beers and reminiscing about my grandfather and, uh, the kids were just inside. It was these kids that I hardly knew. And we shared kind of this magical afternoon watching this movie. Uh, and it definitely put me in the, the fall autumnal vibes. Like Sean was saying, like it's the most autumnal movie I've seen. Mm-hmm. What about you, Dylan? So I, uh, I actually had only seen it for the first time today. I read okay. the book, uh, a while ago. Um, I think I actually, I said that I started getting serious into Bradbury, I think to about two years ago or something like that. But I had read and knew of something wicked this way comes for, for a while. But my first toe dipping into the Bradbury cinematic universe was actually about maybe 14 hours ago. Um, and the number one, right off the bat, the biggest thing that surprised me about this was it's a Disney movie. Um, Disney would not make a movie like this these days. And that's not me being, you know, the anti-woke guy. I'm just like, <laughs> this movie was dope. This was like, if you remember, like in the, in the eighties, I feel like, especially Disney just kind of did whatever they wanted to. And then in the nineties, they even kind of still did that a little bit too. They had stuff like Hocus Pocus and things like that. But dude, this was an insane Disney movie. Right off the bat, you get the idea that it's going to be wild, I think, because of the opening, the titles with the, like the wax melting in reverse kind of look. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved yeah, the Raid Bradbury and then the, the something wicked this way comes title melting. in. I thought it was blood. Wax makes a lot more sense. Both these movies made me ask, why do I not have a stick of melting wax with my own personal seal so I can seal things to hand to people? I would write notes constantly to people and hand them if I was able to seal it with wax like that. Why I am I not doing this? That would be a great addition for your customers. That's oh. a good idea. I'm going to hit farmer's markets hard this spring. Mm-hmm. Oh, do it, dude. That would be so Ooh. awesome. Could, could you imagine that? Like the clout. Business... Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. I'm really, I was about to ask somebody to write this down and then I remembered, oh yeah, I'm going to edit this later. <laughs> I'll just <laughs> listen to this again. You know, off mic earlier, you were talking idea. about how your kitchen was from the sixties, but now we're finding out that your kitchen is from the 1960s, <clears throat> but the place in which you write letters is from the 1760s. So I'm really excited. <laughs> I wrote all of my recipes and ingredients on just ink and feather. 
my nephew, I think it was my, when my nephew, when he was like, yeah, it was like six years old. Two years ago, I think I was over at my sister's for COVID and he wanted a ink and quill, I believe because of Harry Potter. Oh my God. And he fucking spilled the ink within (laughs) five minutes of opening it and then like walked through the hallway and my sister is like, what did you do? And thank God for whatever is shitty ink. They were able to wipe it up, and it hadn't dried, and it was wipe-cleanable. But oh it was gosh. just an immediate nightmare of a present for a parent. I mean, that's that's actually, like, it's a good segue into something that we see really early on in this movie, which is, and maybe you all can answer this for me, when does this take place? Because the kids were using, like, inkwells and pens when they mm-hmm. were staying in what I thought was detention. I couldn't figure out when this was supposed to take place. I was about to say 1899, but that's our next movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because so I assume that the, the football guy, because you know, of the townspeople, the football guy who's missing an arm and a leg, I assume he lost that in one of the wars, either the Great War or World War II. So that means this movie has to either take place in the 20s. Or the 50s. With Bradbury's age, it would probably not be the 50s. It would probably have to be earlier. But that would mean we didn't write with pins like that in the 20s. (laughs) What is going on? It's just this beautiful mishmash of everything that might be nostalgic. Touche. There's an old guy in the theater going, man, I remember writing with those pins. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Right off the bat with this movie, I have a front yard that, living in California, it's no. most people are ditching grass lawns, and so I have a dead grass lawn in my front yard. I dropped the ball not having a goddamn jack-o'-lantern pumpkin farm in my front yard. I could have turned some profit and also just had the most festive autumnal front yard like this movie starts yes i next year mark my words here next year i will have a pumpkin farm on my front yard you would be one of the autumn people i i am an autumn person <laughs> i autumn i it autumn is it's such bullshit cuz i feel like autumn lasts for 6 weeks it's it's the most short changed season and it's the best one it is it is. I, I'm, I'm confident with that. Um, I can support that. I mean, I, uh, you guys probably, I mean, I know you guys know, but I just got back from Maine and I was in Maine for a week. And that, that place is autumn constantly, except when it's snowing, which is fine because snow is my second favorite type of season situation. Um, but I got to say, in Oklahoma, we kind of have an even shorter autumn. Our autumn lasts like probably around the same time as a Tennessee autumn lasts which is you know if we're lucky three weeks uh, a couple mm-hmm. good weekends maybe um so you californian better enjoy those six <laughs> weeks while we're freezing <laughs> or cooking but the grass is always greener except when it's whiter because <laughs> i'm always jealous of people who live with snow dude i love snow i love I, snow i want I, to wash my I face i lived in colorado 
I lived in Colorado for a few years, and when the snow would fall, it was the quietest thing I'd ever heard. And I could sit on my porch with a big blanket and read a book, and this the entire neighborhood was illuminated by the street lights more than they ever were because of the way the light reflected, and it was just absolutely silent. I miss it so much. Crushing silence. I I, I am just like, I know it's a tough winter in Maine, but I'm also so jealous of that misery cabin life. Oh, yeah. Yes. It's, it's, I've been reading a lot about- Jealous of that guy who got hobbled. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like, I've been reading a lot. Just hobble me and leave me in a cabin all winter, please. Oops, can't go anywhere. I'm hobbled. You, uh, I, I oops, I, that's exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Now feed me soup all the oh, time. Oh no, please, not flannel for another week. Um, no, but I, dude, I, um, I've been reading a lot about, about Hugo and about, you know, the, the that's the Danish oh, practice. Here so we go. No, but here get, we go. But get this, this fits, I swear. But what I love about it is like, it's this whole kind of cultural phenomenon in, uh, or phenomena in 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 daneland um in denmark surrounding it's cold outside it's dark constantly what are we going to do to stay cozy and have fun and it's like it's for those of you that don't know about hugo first of all congratulations on being a better person than me um but secondly it's like (laughs) everything that you like is probably it fits into that so it's like hugo's about like you know having good hot chocolate and a glass of wine and reading an old book with the pages maybe falling out and the books falling apart by the fire, wearing wool socks that, for bonus points, you knit yourself. Like, dude, that sounds... Could you imagine watching this movie in that kind of an atmosphere? I would die. I would go into a cozy coma. But, like, this type of movie... My first note is actually... This is how stupid my notes are. My note says, this type of movie is so freaking perfect. And then I have Tom and Huck, comma, Casper, comma, etc. So I think what I was trying to say there is these like, there's just something about this kind of movie where I think it's just the nostalgia, which is what, like we were talking about earlier, what Bradbury's good at, where it's just like, he so perfectly captures autumn and halloween and this time of year for both a very specific type of childhood but also every childhood he does it well stephen king does it really well um and i just i don't know did you all feel that way at all absolutely i feel like uh it's i mean i grew up in a small town in northern indiana um called middlebury like wow yeah of all things, very much, it seems like it came out of a Twilight Zone. I mean, there was a lot of Twilight Zones that were very um, uh, nostalgic um, and, you know, looked back at, like, where Rod Sterling had come from uh, when he, because he grew up in Binghamton, New York, um, and it was supposedly a very similar kind of thing. The, the town I grew up in, we had one stoplight, which turned to a flashing yellow light, uh, in the afternoon and stayed that way all evening. Um, when we finally got a McDonald's, the McDonald's had a hitching post That's and awesome. the inside was quilt themed. <laughs> it was, 
it was like growing up in Cozyland. Oh it really my was. Gosh. <laughs> we we had something called the Fruit Hills. Uh, I mean, it's it was ridiculous just to grow up kind of. We we lived in a city area, and then we moved out to this country area, um, and we were surrounded by farms. And it was just, I would ride my bike around. It was just beautiful. And this movie, even though, you know, I didn't grow up in the 20s, uh, I I think there are a couple cars in it, like something that looks like maybe a Model T or a Model A or what have you, um, which would place it, I believe, in the 20s. It would make sense with a World War One injury, yeah, for that one guy, yeah. Um, but it definitely there's something so the the rich vein of Americana, I think, mm-hmm. that travels through this movie and those types of places. Um, and I can still get some of that. It's a different different thread of it going into the countryside around Nashville, Nashville City. None of that. As Sean knows, I live on the outskirts of town. It takes roughly half an hour to get anywhere. Uh, and that's, it's the weirdest thing. It's like living that's, in a portal. That's, that's the best way to live. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> I live 20 minutes from anything and I wouldn't want it any other way. I'm jealous the, you both. I live 10 minutes from everything. The nice thing is there is a movie theater 10 minutes from my house. But that's Soul. about, yeah, it's great. I'm going to go see Triangle of Sadness at my indie theater about 15 minutes away very soon. And then I have my other big guy, which is about 25 minutes away. And that's mm-hmm. where I recline and see movies like Smile and big release stuff. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if you all wanted to, to jump this galactic, but I kind of I tried to look at this movie based on a couple of giant themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause I'm supposed, I'm supposed to look at things and take them too literally, um, by virtue of, of my academic upbringing. But the first thing that I wanted to do is we talk a little bit about, um, kind of the title, but so as y'all probably know, something wicked this way comes is Shakespeare. It's, uh, act four, scene one of Macbeth, which I think, don't tell anyone, is better than Hamlet. It's my favorite Shakespeare play, so I'll just, I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, sleep no more, Macbeth murders sleep. <laughs> but the, 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 full line, the full line that comes from the quote is spoken by one of the witches. I think it's the second witch um, in Macbeth. And she says, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Open locks, whoever knocks. And uh, fun fact, pricking um does not mean what you think it does it means tingling so it's kind of like the witch has a spider sense where her thumbs are tingling and she senses something wicked is coming but what the context of the play tells us is that the wicked thing that's coming is macbeth and by act four if for those of you who know the macbeth story by act four macbeth is already in a bad way he's made some bad decisions he's killed some people maybe i don't know some of his buddies stuff like that and so, in a way, the witches are, they're kind of being a little bit sarcastic there. They're like, uh-oh, I, I sense something bad's coming. There's a monster around. But they kind of created the monster. Um, they gave Macbeth the ammunition, if you will, that he needed to make all these decisions. They basically just gave him what he wanted, if you will, and mm-hmm. unlocked that other part of himself. So, 
Knowing that, I wanted to see if we could find anything like that in this movie or in this story that was similar. And I think that's exactly what this story is about. It's about this guy coming into town with his carnival, Mr. Dark, ominously named Mr. Dark, and basically just giving the people what they want. Um, reminded me a lot of Stephen King's Needful Things. Um, one of my which, notes. Which, yeah, which very famously, you know, is a story about, I think, literally the devil coming into Castle Rock and setting up a secondhand store and giving everyone exactly what they want. And kind of showing what happens to people if if they are given what they want, if they if their heart's desire is truly met. You know, we have um it's just it's replete in this thing. Dylan? Yes. You and I recently talked about twisted metal, did oh, we not? Calypso! What have you done? Would you say Calypso is a Mr. Dark because he <laughs> yes. gives people exactly what they want? He absolutely but is. But it's always fucked up and twisted in some weird <laughs> yep. way where they end up stretched across the sky or king of a mountain of bodies or just some weird shit that happens. No, no, absolutely. What what I'm really trying to say is that Twisted Metal is probably, it belongs on the same storytelling tier as, <laughs> as, as Bradbury and Shakespeare. But, um, <laughs> but, but no, like, like one, of my, one of my favorite examples is in my notes, I just have Chekhov's hot chick because at the very beginning, you know, whenever Miss Foley, this this old decrepit teacher, is making the boys, I assume they're in detention because they're the only ones there. But um, you hear this voiceover from from adult Will that says, "Some say she used to be the the hottest girl in town." I mean, he didn't say that, but he said something similar. And so, as soon as that happens in my head, I'm like, "Okay, we're gonna see her." Like that's Chekhov's hot chick. You can't talk about the hot chick and not show her. And so, you know, one of the things is. She feared getting older, and she wanted to be young and beautiful again, and she was, but then she went blind. Um, so it's like you're getting what you want, but you're not exactly getting what you want. I feel like that's kind of the first big theme in the story, and there, there's another theme, too, that's tied into it, I think, um, and, and, but I kind of treat it as a separate one, and it's just the, the idea of mortality, um, which you could argue most art is about mortality. But this specifically is about um, mortality and how each one of these boys is handling it. Um, because you have Jim Nightshade and Will Holloway, they're dealing with mortality and growing older very differently for very different reasons. Jim lost his father. Jim's father is already, is already gone. So he kind of sees his own existence through that lens. Then you have Will, on the other hand, who is seeing his dad get older. And I think at the beginning, you know, during his voiceover, he says something like, you know, he basically talks crap on his dad getting older. Like, oh, this is when his heart was finally getting ready to get out and do this. And he's a man who's at the end of his rope and all that. So he kind of sees it differently. And I think that what this story really comes down to is, is this, this, this analysis on, on how people handle mortality and in turn, how they seek out things that they don't need, things that don't matter, to kind of fight back that that passage of time. Um, and and the, the, one of the kind of big things that 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 clicked that flipped that switch for me was was the use of autumn and the autumn people and the fact that the carnival always came in the autumn. Just 
because the autumn of one's life is what this is truly about. It's the end of the spring. It's the end of the summer. It's that kind of downhill to winter and the end of your life. And I think you find support in this thought with something that Mr. Dark says kind of towards the end. He refers to Will um, as a voice of green grass and sunshine. So this youth, this young boy who has his life ahead of him is a voice of green grass and sunshine. And when you compare that to, to the autumn men and, the, and Will's father, who's just getting older, that's kind of what I, what I see churning around on this carousel, if you will, of story. Josh, honing in on that theme of mortality with Jason Robard's story, particularly of being a father, I, I'm not a dad. My dad was a bit older. Let's see. My dad was born in... Four. So my dad was about... Four. 40 or so when he had me so my my parents were generally on the older side i think my my mom was 36 i know that when she had me Mm -hmm. so i i I kind of grew up with older parents but not quite on this scale but just what how did you feel just being a father and relating to this story I, i i feel really bad for this guy because i mean just to to be seen as weak and feeble in the eyes of of your son it it just seems so heartbreaking well it's interesting because as you know i have like two different perspectives on this because i had my biological children i i didn't have them my ex-wife did um but when they were born i was what like 23 and 25 so pretty young um and I still felt 18 and, and invincible at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm a little bit older and remarried and uh, we have Olivia who is just seven. And just recently I've discovered that I have to get shoulder surgery um, because of an old, old injury from playing roller hockey and working in a factory when I was younger. And, I can't pick her up right now. And that's weird. Like the mental disconnect that happens. um, We have a pull-up bar and one of the things we do, like while Elizabeth is cooking dinner, a lot of times is we would, you know, I would hold her up there and she would do pull-ups and I can't like put my arm up above my head to do that anymore. uh, And I can't support the weight and that hits you. I can't imagine being Jason Robards in this movie. I mean, partially he has done it to himself. He thinks of himself as older than he is, I believe, even though Robards was in his early sixties, I believe, um, like maybe 61 when he, uh, filmed this, uh, which is still, you know, that's, that's an entire voting person older than I am right now. So that's, I'm okay. (laughs) I'm okay with that. I think. Yes. So, I'll be honest, I, I I had a rough night's sleep having a very old dog who I wake up to check on many times. I feel like my attention wasn't completely here today. Why there's the story about the pond and Robard's act of cowardice, mm-hmm. seemingly. Mm-hmm. Could you guys fill me in on what that is? Because it seems that he's not only concerned about being old, but as that kid 
the other kid, the nightshade kid says like right off the bat, your your dad's a coward. And then, you know, the other kid responds like, oh, yeah, well, your dad's never coming back. And <laughs> these two boys are so cruel to each other. That's um, why they're best Bird. friends. But with Robards, what was what was this backstory of his character? Um, so they he mentions at one point, I believe, when they're having their little heart to heart on the stairs uh, at like three o'clock in the morning that his father didn't believe in teaching boys to swim. So that was something he didn't learn. Like, I think the implication is that from a, from a young age, he was an old man. He was a very serious man. And that's why he's become the town librarian is he's very studious and he doesn't have that. Let's go frolic through the fields um, type of mentality. And he never really has. And I can also kind of relate to that having been, you know, an inside kid and a bookish kid, like it's, uh, having kids turns you into a different type of person, or at least I think it should. And it seems like he has kind of stayed on his path. And, um, I, I mean, I, the phrase fuddy duddy isn't necessarily <laughs> the most, uh, eloquent, but I feel like that is very fitting for his character. And I mean, there, there's kind of another level to to his kind of quote unquote cowardice, or the alleged mm-hmm. the allegation that he's a coward, um, and some things that Mister Dark says to him, uh, because I feel like what what Mister Dark does is like he trusts in human nature, and that as a human, you're just going to come to his carnival and do exactly what you're supposed to do and get things that you want. But then there are the holdouts. And I feel like, um, you know, Will's dad is one of those holdouts. And so what, what Dark does is he kind of tries to prod him a little bit. And I think if, you know, at one point he even talks down on him being a librarian and he says something like, you know, a man who spends his life um, dreaming the dreams of other men um, and, and this whole thing. And for, you know, for, for what, from what I know about Ray Bradbury, just as, as a, as a writer and, what his acolytes, guys like Gaiman, um, believe they, they're all about librarians. They think li- they celebrate librarians, and so I don't think it's any coincidence that you know this this guy who ultimately ends up being a hero in this movie is a librarian. Um, but I think that's kind of the other kind of cowardice and, and regret is is that that's what maybe in his secret heart he thinks he's doing by being a librarian and kind of by resting on his laurels and by not changing is okay. I'm just going to sit in this library, have no actual dreams or thoughts of my own, and instead spend my life reveling in and studying the dreams and thoughts of greater men. Um, and I, I feel like I love that line oh, when yeah. the the dark Mister Dark questions him, and he says, "Yeah, well, some men's dreams are bigger, or or can teach. I can learn more from other men's dreams than I can my own. Mm-hmm. And if that's not like." Both a point of humility, but also it's it's a validation for the scholar and people who don't like have their own experiences per se. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as Newton said, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants by doing that and by researching and reading other people's experiences. And what is and that and that can lift you higher than you could do by yourself. 
there's uh yeah i i feel like too to kind of put a dark spin on it if you will i feel like that 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 also kind of speaks to what mr dark does apparently or it has been doing forever which is you know you can learn things from what other men dream from what other men desire and that's exactly what dark's carnival does it teaches people who they really are um for better or for worse which is something that i love about about this story is you know for you have the guy who wanted money so he got a whole bunch of money and a cigar and he got to ride the ferris wheel with a hot chick and then you get the you know the 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 football star who gets to be young again with all of his limbs and then you get the 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 older woman that gets to be young and pretty again it's like he's learning that that's what they value those were their dreams and that's they're, by living in the past, this is what's happening to them. And so, in in truth, the the kind of stoic bookish guy, um, as as they want to do in Bradbury stories, ends up being the the one that everyone should be admiring. I mean, towards the end, not to, sorry, Josh, not to jump ahead too far, but I I my favorite part of this movie is at the end when the man stands there, and as the devil tears off year after year of his potential life. He stands strong in the face of that and know and just knows that like it's it's just a bullshit lie. <laughs> and it's better to let go of these fantastical whims and desires of changing time and it's to just accept things and mm. to just be happy. And by the end of this movie, just acceptance of being present and happy with where you are and who you're with, basically. Yeah. It's it's an interesting dichotomy between the everybody who's uh venal and gives in and trades away all of their uh you know her her sight or their autonomy for these things that they wanted um they're all very physical Mm -hmm. they're all very shallow ultimately nobody wants anything um they don't even want to be their dreams are very small ultimately that you know none of them are like rulers of the the nation none of them want to great power they want a little bit more than what they have and they're willing to give up everything they had to get a little bit more which seems very american to me that's mm. that <laughs> that seems very yeah. much like what a lot of us would do um and I think the movie, the story winds up celebrating both um, the experiential in uh, how they wind up saving Jim and kind of the little epilogue scene uh, where they're rather, they're joyous and it celebrates the, I guess the intellectual mm-hmm. in having the character of the librarian be the one who, He's the only one who holds out. He's the only one who, by the lack of having small dreams himself, he knows uh, dreams. He knows goals. He knows big, big stories, and he's not going to fall for it. Mm -hmm. And I think it really does, even though, and this is a perfect example of um, depiction not equaling um, uh, endorsement, right? Where because the the movie itself depicts him as weak and small and uh, cowardly, but 
what it's actually telling us is he is a much different person than that. And Mm -hmm. that he is someone to be celebrated. And that type of person is to be celebrated in our communities and in our lives. And I think, I don't know that you would get that kind of messaging necessarily, that type of layered uh, approach in a lot of Disney movies from, (laughs) from any era, let alone the, the shallow eighties. That was beautifully said, Josh. Very well. That was a wonderful point. Thank you. No, I, I, I agree completely. And, and, you know, I, I kind of joked about this at the beginning with, with Disney not making movies like this anymore. And, and I, w- I mean, I was being serious too. It's, it's mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, this is, it's the kind of movie that lingers. It's those, you know, a lot of those older Disney movies tend to linger a little bit and, um, you know, kind of from a purely Epicurean approach, like 2022 Disney wouldn't dare show like a, is okay. I'm not sure what the correct terminology is. and I don't want to be non PC. So I will say an individual of, um, smaller stature than the American average would not depict someone like that picking up a skeleton of his old boss off of a cursed carousel at the end of a movie in which the devil was doing things in a small town in Illinois. Like Disney would not make that movie nowadays. And that's sad. You know, it's, it's, it reminds me so much talking about librarians and, and about, about libraries and about dreams, about access to other people's dreams. It reminds me of the whole argument about banning books. And when you hear about you know, banning books and not telling certain stories because they don't fit within X, Y, Z. I just, you know, I, being a, becoming a dad changed me too, man. Um, it, it changed me in that I don't want, this is going to sound really weird. I don't want anyone but me to decide what my daughter can't read. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, or can't watch. I don't need someone else to do it. I'm, I'm her dad. That's what I do. But, you know, stuff like this and the recent, you know, situation that actually was going on, I think it, it was in Tennessee, wasn't it, with Mouse? Oh, yeah. Yep. Just this whole, this whole idea of, of, you know, I guess you could say the reason why Will's dad was so powerful, he was a librarian, was because he was exposed to so much different, so many different lines of thinking, so many different dreams, so many different ideas. And that's something that we all want for everyone. It's what we all want for our own kids. And I don't know how I ended up talking about Disney not depicting skeletons um, to me pulling out my book, my banning of books soapbox. But I think if I get this close <laughs> to Bradbury, it just happens because it was a pleasure to burn. Um, but <laughs> but no, I mean, Sean, you apologize because you're jumping towards the end. But I feel like that's really the only place to go at this point is 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 to the end of this, because I mean, so much of so much of this movie, so much of the meat of this movie is in this like last 20, 30 minutes. Um, and a question that I kind of asked myself that I want to ask you all is, you know, this is the kind of story we, we've seen a lot. I mentioned, you know, I mentioned earlier and, and I think or it was either me or it was, it was Josh. We mentioned needful things um, that this is the kind of a similar story, needful things. I think, you know, one of the OG stories is, um, is Faustus. Uh, you know, where you're making, it's just, it's a classic deal with the devil kind of story. Um, and the question that I always have is, are the bad guys, quote unquote, bad guys in movies like this and stories like this, 
are they even really the bad guys in a sense if all they're doing is providing an opportunity for people to act? Ooh, I mean, is it just like so many stories about people with shortened lifespans becomes a, become about what do you do with the life that you have? And you can extrapolate that to all of us could have shortened lifespans. We don't know, ultimately. And so you can read it as a metaphor for how you should live your life, some kind of instructional guide. I think the same thing applies here, but it's the darker side of it is exactly what you said. If if you could get away with anything, if you could get one over on the universe, what would you do? These people have already had this th- these thoughts. Mm-hmm. These men in this town are thirsty. <laughs> they mm-hmm. want the plump, sweet thighs of beautiful Cuban ladies. The handsome to, women. Yes. <laughs> Can I just say, being currently a 36-year-old man, I think a lot of times people conflate the past and inflate it with grandiose memories Mm. of the good times and everything you transport yourself back to being 30 years old you're just gonna end up going through the same fucking struggles Mm. and everything that you forgot about it's not gonna be this utopian existence of just like banging young women all the time that's not what (laughs) your 30s are so the Again, like the idea that these ideas are so small that they're almost on like an insect level, just like it's the most rudimentary idea of like, I want my other leg or I want to I want to go back 30 years. And it's like, motherfucker, you could do anything if you really wanted to. Why don't you ask this guy if you could fly? Why didn't you ask this guy if you could control time yourself? Nobody's (laughs) nobody's thinking big here. So, so something, I, I can't remember where, where I read it or where, where I heard it, but someone was talking about nostalgia as a concept <clears throat> and about why everyone is so eager to go back to, you know, to a time where quote unquote America was great or whatever you want to say. And why we always think about, you know, when we think about our favorite Christmas, it's always one when we were a kid. It wasn't like last Christmas. And what this writer said was something like, the reason why we we why nostalgia works is because it wasn't necessarily a time where we were happier. It was a time where we didn't have as many responsibilities, and that's what we we don't crave that that specific time. We just crave that realization that we don't really have anything to worry about. And that's I mean it, it reminds me also so much of um of and I I hate that I'm talking about him because I think he's a terrible person. Um, but Woody Allen, his movie Midnight in Paris, which I fell head over heels for when it came out, there's this great, you know, whole part in, in Midnight in Paris where, you know, of course, Owen Wilson's character is writing a, a book about a guy who owns a nostalgia shop. So it ties into everything, but you know, the whole thing with Midnight in Paris, spoilers from Midnight in Paris, I guess, is he, uh, he goes to Paris and he travels back in time to hang out with the lost generation um, in the 20s and, uh, and you know, have a, have a drink with Ernest Hemingway and all that. But then he finds out that the people in the 20s are also traveling back to the Belle Epoque 
um, you know, the 19th century in Paris. And the people there are like, oh, no, this isn't the best time to live in. It was back during that time. And it was back during that time. It was back during that time. And this, the whole movie is just posited on this idea that everyone craves the time that came before. Because kind of like, like Sean said earlier, like it's a whole grass is always greener sort of situation. Um, and I just think, you know, there's a whole faction of people um, mostly online and mostly angry that talk about nostalgia porn and, and nostalgia being a bad thing. Um, and I don't think it is at all. I think nostalgia is perfectly healthy as long as we realize why we're specifically nostalgic about something. And I'm totally fine with saying I'm nostalgic for the 90s because I didn't have to pay taxes. <laughs> I just think back to lately, lately, I think I'm coming out of like a lot of shit with COVID and I started therapy again recently. I saw this therapist twice in person, and our second meeting was the day that the NBA shut down because Rudy Gobert tested positive for COVID. Oh boy. And so while we were at our therapy session, she's like, so when should we schedule our next appointment? I'm like, well, why don't we wait a month and see when this COVID thing blows <laughs> over? <laughs> and then <laughs> Q three years later, I've started online therapy with her. But I I think because of this and the preparation to start therapy, a lot of shit is coming up. And I've been having the some heavy, heavy nostalgia pangs to like sitting around with our golden retrievers, watching Nickelodeon mm. and specifically Christmas memories. And these things hit me like a ton of bricks sometimes. Mm. No, and like, uh, oh, go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, Dylan, the a thing that I believe you will find um, as as a fellow, uh, let's see, genre interested sensei, right? <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we, we both have both of those threads mm-hmm. um, is that uh, your nostalgia as your daughter grows will change. Mm mine now that my daughters my biological daughters are 17 and 19 i rarely think of my own childhood anymore mm-hmm. but i think of theirs a lot that's that's wonderful that like that's that's wow that's wonderful and i mean that that brings up something i think that is is so important to think to realize when you think about nostalgia is nostalgia is is not the event itself it's the feeling that is associated with it because we know that our our memories are are bad and like what's what's the statistic it's something ridiculous like 90 80 or 90 percent of our memories are things that didn't actually happen that way or something crazy like that just some weird statistic yeah but ironically time, i can't remember that every time we think about a memory it becomes more fabricated it's like, and less true to the actual memory itself it's like playing telephone with yourself but like the, the one yeah. thing, the one, the one thing I would argue, and I'm, I am a man of science. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I know nothing about science, but what I would argue is that it's much harder to do that with feelings with, with facts. It's easy to do that, but with feelings, it's very difficult. And so, you know, like Sean, when you're talking about sitting around Christmas time with your golden retrievers, watching Nickelodeon, there was the fact there was the event, but then there's also the feeling associated with it. Right. And that feeling was maybe it was peace. Maybe it was calm. Maybe it was no, just. No, it wasn't though. I was a stressed out kid. That's the thing. <laughs> I, I just, I think back on the past with rose colored lenses because I was, 
there, I was never, I was never, like, there were so few times where I was left alone where I feel like I could have just, like, watched TV or just done what I wanted to without constant worry of somebody calling my name from the hallway <laughs> to, clean, to yell clean. at me to do something, to <laughs> clean, to do homework, to this or that, and, like, and maybe this is why I've just been, like, a complete isolated hermit now as 36, like, for the past eight years or whatever is just because nobody will yell at me now or yo nobody will tell me when I need to do something. I don't know. But like, but, but no, I, I think, yeah. but no, I, I wash out. It's, it's a complete whitewashing of my past when I have nostalgia. Mm. I remember the beautiful times sitting around the Christmas tree, eating my sister's um, cinnamon rolls that she makes every single year when we were growing up and stuff. I thought Sean just confessed to cannibalism. Eating my, I know, I, that was a long sisters. pause. That was a long pause in that sentence. That was, <laughs> that was, it was Friday night, man. It's okay. the most uncomfortable pause in can national I, can CA I blame, history. Can I, can I blame your COVID brain on me yeah, pausing do it, there? Do it. I passed my COVID. I texted my COVID brain to you. But but no, like, <laughs> like, but like that, that, that line of thinking, I mean, that totally vice with this whole idea of, of as, as a father, your nostalgia becoming more the nostalgia associated with your kids because if nostalgia in and of itself is is connected directly with feeling i can absolutely totally see i mean like i i have nostalgia for the bring like the first couple weeks that we brought our daughter home from the hospital because it was in december it was around like the week before christmas and right around that Mm -hmm. time and just sitting with this new baby that slept all the time around a Christmas tree. Like it's just, it's crazy to think that that's what's, what's, what's going to happen. And it's exciting too, man. It's, it's wonderful. And this whole idea of nostalgia, just kind of dovetailing it back in really quickly to to this. The one thing that, that I think is, is really, really well, it's well implemented in this movie is what seemed to happen in a lot of 80s movies, which is the adult version of the character telling a nostalgic tale of his own past about himself. Um, which, I mean, you know, talking about whether or not our own, how faulty our own memories are, it also makes you wonder, specifically with this story, like these fantastical elements and all that, like how much of that maybe actually quote unquote happened or how, and how much of it was just his child brain and this and that. And I don't know, man, stories are hard sometimes. <laughs> Did you get a Christmas story vibes from oh. the narration, the bookends on this movie? Yes. I got a Christmas story. And then also I wrote in my notes, uh, to kill a mockingbird. It's spooky to kill yes. a mockingbird. Now Dale came back. Also, I, uh, I did wear this flat cap today. In honor of that little kid, that outfit he has when he has on his um, his overalls with his like flat cap, just like the cutest little thing. And that's also pretty much how I dress sometimes when I'm out working in my garden and stuff. I kind of like to embody that Irish Scottish farmer look. And that's exactly how this kid is dressed. Newsy. <laughs> it's like it's a newsy but with a little bit of denim overalls going on you know oh yeah nice, a nice chambray work shirt um josh can i ask you a question 
Sure. Did you intentionally make me watch The Fun House twice in the span of three episodes? <laughs> one of my notes was, how, do, how does this carnival uh, compare to the one in The Fun House? As, as this movie is going, I was like, wait, wait, we're, it's about kids getting chased around in a carnival? Did, I, did you remember this? Did you realize oh, absolutely. this when you... Okay, I was just theme. curious. Yeah, it's uh, well, okay. It's just it, curious, Dylan. Have, have you um, seen well, let's see. the Funhouse? Toby think... Hooper's the Funhouse. I have okay. not. I was trying to think of. Yeah, so I mean, just imagine like sleazy Toby Hooper version of this movie, and and the, you pretty much got it. The Sweet. same. They do the same gag with the 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 women dancing the dance of the seven veils. Uh, yeah, around the guy. And the kids peeking in, you've got a very similar gag in uh, the funhouse, except for it's teenagers, and it's a lot sleazier, like Sean said. It's like something wicked this way comes, like Porky's too. Something wicked this way comes. Yes, <laughs> I'm gonna make a joke that's beneath me right now. Okay, something wicked this way. C U M S. Something wicked this way comes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, uh, that was that was literally below you. One, th- uh, yeah. one thing that I would like to just key on, on just some weird little shit that I saw in this movie. The cigar store slash tobacco store vendor has an arm that's permanently has a thumb on fire, and then you just swing that arm out to light. <laughs> There's things that I'm. I smoked for 13 years, and the fact that I didn't get to experience something like this angers me. Why <laughs> Why does this not exist in any city? I want this. I want to pull this little arm out and light my stogie there and talk with my local cigar concierge before I go on around my day. Well, see, knowing what we know about Mr. Dark, if the carnival showed up in California and you went there, you would play a game, a ring toss game, and you would win it, and your prize would be one of those hands that has a lighter on it and a whole bunch of new cigars because Mr. Dark is going to help you start smoking again, and then you're also going to get that. Damn it. (laughs) Damn it, Mr. Dark. What would you do? You know, honestly, making the Calypso connection to Twisted Metal has really <laughs> tied this movie together in my brain in a way that it wasn't quite connecting. <laughs> you today. see, the puppy is like industry. I love it. Um, there's... <laughs> that's a very... <laughs> that's very funny. There's a line... I don't know what character says. She's more beautiful than Pocahontas or Helen of Troy. <laughs> With, or Helen of with, Troy. I, Helen of Troy, yes, she was notoriously beautiful. They mm-hmm. launched 500 ships off of her face. <laughs> was Pocahontas beautiful notoriously? Is that part of the the tale? I believe she, that's, part, that's part of lore. Yeah, she, I mean, she played two jobs. I don't know. I've never... I've never... <laughs> I've never seen... Or read of Pocahontas. I never. That's a Disney movie that I think by the time that one came out when I was a kid, 
I was like, ew, girls, I don't want to watch that. I uh, I have a, another entry point for you um, for the Pocahontas story and a, and a movie that I think is... I'm, I'm famous... In my family, I'm famous for not thinking Pocahontas is a good movie um, because my wife thinks that Pocahontas is a great movie. Um, I do not think <laughs> it's a good movie. I think that the better Pocahontas movie is Terrence Malick's The New World. Um, Ooh. I think Terrence Malick did it. It seemed, it seemed yeah. like he did it, but Colin Farrell um, plays John Smith, I think. Because the, the weird thing that the Disney movie did, it, I mean, kind of weird, and they kind of did it, is, so I'm going back on what I said, is they made the relationship between Pocahontas and John Smith, and then what happened is we finally learned about it in school, and all the people who had seen Pocahontas, which was everybody, because it was Disney and it was the 90s, goes wait a second she didn't marry john smith no she married another guy named john rolf and he brought her to england but so Mm -hmm. and then so when they made pocahontas 2 if you didn't realize they made a pocahontas 2 was because it was straight to video john rolf was in pocahontas 2 and so i would just watch the new world it's much more fun to look at too because what terrence malick lacks in 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 storytelling he makes up for in cinematography in my opinion do you like the thin red line i love the thin red line at times i think it's better than saving private ryan i agree i i i was a saving private ryan teenager i watched the thin red line maybe with my dad on dvd one day and was like this is weird i was craving like more action and then at some point in my 20s, I watched The Thin Red Line, and I was, like, weeping in parts mm-hmm. of it. That's a movie that I I can't really watch very often because I know how heavy of an emotional response I'm going to have. But it's one of the most beautiful movies at the same time. Yeah. And it's that juxtaposition of the horror of war with Malick's Attenborough-esque cinematography mm. of nature that crushes me he kind of i feel like in in thin red line malik really captures what um i always remember from when i first read the red badge of courage and it's this whole idea of there are these horrible just awful bloody brother killing brother things going on and nature doesn't care nature's still there being beautiful that's what nature does but <laughs> No, oh, it's crazy. Um, I wanted to do like a little rapid fire through some of the the things in this movie. Sean's going to be over at the tobacconist. Dylan, uh, do you want to hang out at the all night library with me? Uh, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. That that's amazing. I I want to have that access to the library. Like he ju- he can't sleep. So he just goes to the library and hangs out. Like, There's, dude, like not to get too, I mean, not to dip into Sleepy Hollow at all, but like there are two instances, once in each of these movies where it's like, oh, can't sleep, gonna go to the library. And then Sleepy Hollow, it's like, oh, I can't sleep. So I'm gonna sit in front of this giant fire and read about witchcraft. Like mm-hmm. there, there, it's just, oh, it's so perfect. But yeah, I'm with you at the library. And there's no internet at these libraries, so there's nobody masturbating in them. <sighs> Books, I mean, dude. Other men's yeah. dreams are there. Some of those are going to be wet dreams. <laughs> wet dreams. Oh no. Oh boy. Um, 
how cool was it the the tree between the two houses love the tree bridge yep yes love that tree bridge between these two houses with these kids also when they inevitably grow apart as i gr- i grew apart from my friend across the street mm-hmm. there was a kid named tim that i was close with and then um around the time i don't know he was 14 and i was 12 or so I was still a kid, and he started partying and stuff, and I was like, "Oh, uh, 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 I'm not, I'm not a part of that." And that was the end of it. But until then, oh, I, I want these kids to have cans on a string because this is the most perfect scenario mm-hmm. for this to happen. What about? Oh, we haven't talked about the effects in this movie. So good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I put one of my notes is solid effects Disney, and I think based on the based on where in my notes that is, I think it was whenever Mister um, Mister Dark was getting uh, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusaded on the carousel. Mm. I mm. thought uh, when Pam Greer shows up uh, as the what is she the Mistress of the Sands or whatever they call her, mm-hmm. um, she's got this like animated cloak over top of her. And when she starts moving, it, it falls into scales and falls off of her and lands like broken glass around her. And I was like, that was, that's freaking astonishing. It's so cool. I was upset because Pam Greer was the answer on actoral like two days ago. (laughs) And then I watched this movie today and it really would have fucking helped except it wouldn't have, because I didn't see her name in the credits, and I don't know what Pam Greer looks like, so I didn't recognize her until you just said her name. It's like the line from the rehearsal. It's like the episode of the rehearsal where they're walking around, and that police officer goes, "It's days like this I cursed the Chinese for inventing gunpowder." It's like it's the perfect, <laughs> the perfect time for you to see this. That's astonishing. Uh, I like that. If the the audio effects are pretty fucking wild when um that they're in the mirror house mm-hmm. the house of mirrors hall of mirrors at the end also by the way don't ever fucking go to the hall of mirrors in monterey california i was on a date i was like well this will be like a fun diversion before we go out to bars it we were in and out of that fucking thing in three minutes and then the guy's like well you can go back the other way if you want i was like dude fuck this this piece of shit sucks. In my, let me tell you how I thought that was going to go in my head. Guys, never go to the Monterey, California House of Mirrors. I went on a date there a couple years ago. I think she's still in there. <laughs> it was too good. Why are you putting all these sinister motives and intentions to me? My name is Mr. Dark. I mean. Anyways, when that kid yells, I love you. And it's like, I love you, love you, love you, love you. And then it, for like two minutes, that audio of that kid just say love you is like echoing back and forth. As dad, I loved, I did like the fact a lot when the dad punches through the mirror, which then becomes water that he pulls his son through the water. Um, that was pretty cool. And then um, we get... Chekhov's lightning rod salesman, who was a grifter the whole time, except I guess he's not a grifter. He's actually a superhero who was waiting for like Thor's 
the hardest yep, electric yep. rod to <laughs> stab a woman with. I check off lightning rod, man. It's like, are these going to come in handy again? They do. That's, I also love how this, he goes, this is specific Egyptian. This is Egyptian. You see, it's, it has this special writing on here, just in case. The, uh, I noticed kind of going back, scanning through the movie a little bit. Everything is set up in the first couple minutes. Like how tightly everything is packed in there, actually. Mm. Like the, um, you go through the town kind of the same route that the, the parade goes later. Mm-hmm. Um, you see all of the stores, you see what's happening in them. Each of the people pops out and says something that relates to their wish. And you even see the, the grate in the ground where the boys hide during the parade and the blood drips down on Will's face. Um, like, it's all right there for you. It's so, I don't know what else this guy directed, um, but the kudos to him. Which? He directed, uh, some movie about a woman who's convinced that her house is haunted. That's famous. Are you looking it up, Josh? Oh, the innocence. I've never seen it, but I've, I, I, I know it's well known in the genre. Is the innocence, yeah, the innocence is, is the, fantastic. Is that the turn of the screw adaptation? Yes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Blind that's one. that's I, a I very good one. I am. Um, which this parade, dude? I I gotta talk about this parade. Like, <laughs> in the great scheme of creepy parades, do you think that this or the parade from the Wicker Man was creepier? I mean, and think about what they're wearing, how many people are in the parade and ultimately what the parade represents. I feel like that those are your three tenets because I would uh-huh. argue that this parade is creepier. Uh, and I just rewatched the Wicker man a couple weeks ago and that whole act, that whole last mm-hmm. section, right. Is horrifying it's as you so realize good. what's happening. Uh, but this, I, the fact that everyone is like people are cavorting sadly, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like the looks on their faces are blank, but they're the guy is doing cartwheels <laughs> in the street. And it just looks that weird combination of like, uh, it's like sad clowns, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I, I feel like the great canary in the cinematic coal mine for me is my mother. Um, and she was here when I was over at our house, when I was watching this and she spoke up twice in the whole movie. First time was during the parade. And she said, Ooh, that guy seems like he's evil talking about Mr. Dark. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of where I get some of the credence. The other part I'd like you all to know is during the, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Kind of remix. Um, my mom just turns and goes, see, Love always defeats evil. So, <laughs> so that's oh, so. Those are your two. Mom. Yeah, those are your those are your two uh, your two canaries. Um, your two can- canary songs. But um, yeah. but yeah, that dude. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't there like kids sized coffins as well? I believe so. Like what? <laughs> uh, everyone just looks. The uh, Tom Fury, the lightning rod salesman, mm-hmm. as they're carrying him around on the um, 
What's that thing called? Sorry, is that character name or actor name? That's the character name. The actor, his name is Royal Dano, which is almost as good as Tom Fury. That's the whole. I don't know which one is better. Sounds like an amazing sandwich. (laughs) Wait. Dano like Paul Dano? Yeah, I believe no relation, though. Ooh. In my head canon, are, ma- are you just making that up? Uh-oh, I see his um, screens on his glasses. I see I, yeah. I see Josh's um, face is very white now, as Wikipedia's pointing okay. out. Yeah, no, no relation. Damn. Oh, man, um, that would have been... You know how I love to catch you in a gotcha moment. <laughs> the, the reason I know Royal Dano is he was in a bunch of the westerns that we've covered on the other show. Oh, Stagecoach yeah. Justice. <laughs> nice. I um uh, but I, I really enjoyed this movie and I think this was a good pick. Yeah, have we missed anything? Is there anything that you guys want to talk about as we wrap it up? I will say, um uh just to talk about James Horner. Ooh, yes. As I pull up his discography. Horner has done some like amazing movies, particularly in my mind. Like Braveheart was a soundtrack that we went on a vacation as a family to Ireland, and I know it's wrong country, but I still listened to Braveheart soundtrack on CD as we drove around our car in Ireland. Field of Dreams is incredible. Glory is incredible. I didn't like this soundtrack at all. This was so heavy on whimsical flutes and stuff, and it it was lacking those (laughs) Horner... What I like about Horner is Horner gives you... People talk shit about it, but Horner will give you a theme of notes that you can key in on, Mm -hmm. and then he builds on those or changes it, and you see that with Field of Dreams or with Braveheart, where there's, there's a character's theme of just oftentimes like six, seven notes... And then he adds ambience or other instruments on top of that and all around it. This one felt more hodgepodgey of music to me. Mm-hmm. It was hodgepodgey, but recognizable as Horner. If that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It was kind of like, it's like, it reminds me of like, I mean, Sean, you, you bake. Um, it reminds me of kind of like if you're cooking something and like, you know what everything tastes like that you're putting in it. But then when you were done cooking it, it just doesn't really taste the way that you wanted it to. So it's kind of like, like I know this is James Horner because there's, there's paprika in this score, but I don't like what he did with it here. It, I think there's just too much going on for me. And at times I do feel this movie does wear that Disney weight a bit much with um, some of the choices or like how light some things go. Also, at the end, there was one moment where the kid is so afraid that uh, James Nightshade Jim is going to ditch him. And I, that, that rang so specifically true to me as a childhood fear of when you're out with your friends on your bikes or whatever... And that fear that for whatever reason, your friends will decide to ditch you and everyone will just like take off and leave you behind just just to fuck with you. And I, I mean, I did that to kids. Kids did that to me. But that was that was like such a specific, real fear mm. when he says, like, don't ditch me there at the end. 
I uh, I have four notes left, and and they make no sense. And so I'll rapid fire go through them for my final thoughts on the movie. Uh, first note: Mister Dark has big Ivan Ooze energy. Not gonna lie. Um, second note: Milton Bloomquist. Holy shit! Um, I think that. <laughs> Like, what a pull. What a random made-up name. Good job there. Um, third one was a quote from the journal that they found in the uh, library. Uh, quote, it seems they destroy people by granting their deepest wishes, referring to the carnival, as has been the way of the devil. So I love that they just straight up gave us some cool past exposition stuff. Um, and then the last note that I have for this movie is moral circuses are never a good idea. <laughs> the, uh, I had dark and nightshade or nightshade and dark. Which one's better? Nightshade and dark. Nightshade and dark. Yep. Um, the real ponies. When the carousel starts spinning and he starts getting, uh, bonier and bonier suddenly the animals become real <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's just ponies that run past uh, ah a skeleton <laughs> <laughs> that's a great note thank you that's a universal note uh, and the fact that I got fully into this movie like this last section um, I love it when I'm doing the show uh, prepping for the show and my notes get more and more sparse as the movie goes on mm-hmm. because I'm just in the movie. And that's what happened here. Um, I normally have it pulled up on split screen and I didn't look at the right side of my screen for a good chunk of time. And then when I pulled back, it was like, uh, I was surprised that the room was light because we had been in that night for so long that the last 20 or 30 minutes of that movie primarily takes place that one night. And I was amazed that there was sunlight and that the world was not freezing cold. Hmm. Josh, what would you rate this movie out of five? I I gave it uh four and a, I believe it got a heart from me for nostalgia's sake. Dylan, how about yourself? I think it's a four for me as well. Um, it's just, I mean, I obviously don't have a whole lot of nostalgia attached to it because I only watched it for the first time today, but this movie was still able to supply the nostalgia that I lacked naturally occurring, um, which is no easy feat. So four for me as well. This was one of, I think, one of my more favorite discussions that we've had about a movie, especially about a movie I did not like. <laughs> I just didn't like it. It I was checking the running time. I didn't like the kids. Oh. I, I I just it, I, I I if I'd seen this movie as a kid, I would have liked this, but watching this movie as a 36-year-old, I I didn't have any nostalgia attached to it. Um I would say two and a half out of 5. Okay. I respect that. I you just described my relationship with Willow. I never saw Willow as a kid. I saw it for the first time when I was in my late twenties, and I'm just like, okay, it's it's a movie. That's I I've did never see Willow it. as a kid, mm. and I was very excited for it, and I didn't like it then. So maybe it's it's good that I didn't see it as a kid then. Yeah, but I mean, the, so up, 
Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm really, really, really excited to talk about Sleepy Hollow, which is such a good movie, y'all. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of i'm i'm a little bit uh I, I feel like i'm i'm projecting what my rating is going to be but um whenever we were trying to figure out what movie i was going to watch this was like one of three choices um that i that i proffered the lads and we we i landed on this one because this one feels the most halloweeny and i'm realizing now after that discussion that we just had that a lot of that is because of nostalgia for me um mm-hmm. like because this is a very nostalgic halloween movie it's a movie i watched a lot during halloween um and something that okay speaking of halloweeny before you just start into this next movie oh. my halloweeny <laughs> needs a break so i can go to the bathroom <laughs> can we come back and talk about sleepy hollow after the break please he's gonna go take a pee pee swallow no. <laughs> You didn't. You didn't even flinch when your lights went out. You just like. You kept rolling. You're, oh no! It's just in this room only that the lights are out. Well, I figured because otherwise we would have lost you. That's a good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the fastest horse in the race, but. <laughs> These these weekend night recordings, man, (laughs) they're rough. I love this so much. (laughs) All right, Dylan, (laughs) you're you 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 brought some. (laughs) Okay. Dylan, you brought Sleepy Hollow to the table. What's your history with this movie? You didn't? Oh, I did. No, I did. I'm oh, okay. so proud to say I did. Let me tell Some other guy did. No, let me tell you about my story. My Sleepy Hollow meet cute, if you will. Um, so I saw this movie in theaters when I was 11 mm-hmm. years old, I think. 99, 11 years old, born in 88. That's math. Um, and I loved it it was as an 11 year old i was just getting into like hyper violence and scary horror kind of stuff it was the year after um my dad quote unquote let me watch the exorcist so i was like this horror thing seems kind of fun let's see what it's about so of course the logical next step was sleepy hollow the tim burton movie that was coming out and uh i loved it so much i became obsessed with it i saw it in theaters like maybe five or six times um i bought the screenplay when it came out because i had pictures from the movie um i contemplated not re-watching it because i already know it so well but then i was like well why would i rob myself of a chance to watch sleepy hollow again for a reason like i don't even need a reason um but this was actually the first dvd i ever bought um i think well i bought two dvds at the same time for my first dvd so i bought this and mission impossible 2 um and i remember i can't remember the exact month it was released but i remember that star wars episode one had also come out in 99 Mm -hmm. and i only had episode one on vhs 
and I ended up getting Sleepy Hollow on DVD. So it had to have been like a summer um, Thanksgiving release because this this movie to me, I mean, it, obviously it feels like it would be a holiday holiday season release, like not even necessarily a Halloween release, but just a holiday season release movie. And I don't know if I'm right or not, but um, I adore this movie. I think my birthday theme when I was when I turned 11 that year, so I was 10 when I saw it, but I turned 11 in December of 99. Um, I think my birthday theme was like, I want to do Sleepy Hollow stuff. And no joke, I think that's also the same year that my buddies and I stayed up all night playing Twisted Metal. Oh. <laughs> it all comes back all to Twisted comes Metal. together. Dylan, but, but, when, yeah, like, but when I, dead, I love it. Was your first horror movie The Exorcist? And did you have a horror movie? Exp- like, did any horror movie fuck you up as a kid that drove you okay. away from the genre? Um, so I have a really weird relationship with horror movies and with horror in general that I don't think I've ever talked about on a podcast before. But so the first true horror movie I saw, I think may have been. It was either The Shining or The Exorcist. And if it was The Shining, it was around the same time, like nine, ten years old. But I don't think I saw like an uncut version. I think I may have seen, I, I may have saw or seen the, uh, like the TBS edited for TV version of The Shining. But the first like unedited craziness movie that I saw, if I remember, was The Exorcist. At least that's the first one that made an impression on me. Um... And this is the weird thing. I think it was because I was so young that I didn't... To really be scared, I feel like it helps to understand what you're witnessing, to know it's scary. But like when I watched The Exorcist as a, you know, as a 10-year-old, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. So what? She's like floating and throwing up on people and she's possessed by the <laughs> devil? This is crazy. Like I grew up Episcopalian, so all of this mysticism stuff, I mean, I knew just enough about Catholicism as a kid and kind of that tradition to know why it should freak me out, but I wasn't close enough to it for it to actually freak me out. I'll tell you what really freaked me out was stuff that shouldn't have freaked me out. Um, specifically, the single most horrifying thing I remember seeing, well, the two most horrifying things I remember seeing as a kid were one, um, the bad guy in Fern Gully, um, the Hexus, I think is his name, the giant smog and smoke monster. Oh, yeah. I vi- yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know if I ever saw it. Yeah. Yeah, get that thing away from me. And the other thing, first of all, I don't know why they chose to make this decision, but they did and it scared me is whenever um the toaster is having a nightmare in the brave little toaster and the house catches <laughs> on fire and a clown dressed up like a firefighter shows up and tries to spray the toaster. Those things scared me. The exorcist just kind of creeped me out. Um, but I never really had a period of time where I was I was too traumatized by horror and and turned away from it. But I know many of my friends did have that. Um, my my godfather's son, I think he uh, he saw Candyman when he was about ten and had to go to therapy for it. Um, Dude, and- I, I saw it when I was like six, and it fucked me up. And that's a comedy horror movie. Basically, it it has ruined a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and so I I had like sleep problems for a long time and stuff. And so this movie, I was born in '86, so I was 13 when this came out. 
And I remember it was popular amongst kids. And I was like, no, because I don't. I was still so traumatized by having sleep problems. Josh, what's your experience with this? I know you you like Tim Burton a lot, right, Josh? Yeah. Um, especially at the time, I was a big Burton fan. And I did not see this in theaters because when I grew up, it was like maybe half an hour to our closest theater. Uh, and that one was just a two screen. Um, I do remember I did line up for, uh, Phantom Menace though. That's <laughs> that same oh, year. Yeah. Uh, but I distinctly remember they, they had a standee of Sleepy Hollow at my local video store that my friend, uh, Lisa worked at and it was connected to a drugstore. And, uh, so since they had the standee and the poster, they didn't use them both. And I asked for the poster because I was immediately like drawn to this and I'm not going to lie. I'm almost the same age as Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci's face was on this huge. And I was like, I, I need that. I've got it. Was that Christina Ricci in this movie? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I've watched, I've watched the entire season of yellow jackets twice. And I didn't recognize her. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's the hair. The it, hair it threw is you the off. Hair. And the yep. accent. <laughs> I was Let's... like, who is this very angular-faced woman that looks vaguely familiar? <laughs> I, Dylan, okay, Josh, I... and I have, Josh and I have discussed that we, we both may <laughs> suffer from partial facial blindness. Hey, no, I, I... So, I totally get that. I had something similar happened to me while i was watching it i um i i'm like i don't know mandela affected this into my head that tim burton directed the adams family and i remember saying out loud going huh so i guess this is not the only time tim burton and christina rishi have worked together (laughs) and just for some reason thinking that was a great thought and putting it in my freaking notes to talk about (laughs) on this podcast so i want to see if i can stump Josh, I don't think I can, because this is kind of a softball. Uh-huh. But do you know, other than the fact they came out in the same year, do you know the other connection between um, Phantom Menace and Sleepy Hollow? Um, is, is Christopher Lee in Phantom Menace? Uh-uh. Okay. That's a good guess, though. He was, in Attack of, he was just in Attack of the Clones. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Did I do it, Sean? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, Ray I, Park I, plays the Headless Horseman. Oh, Darth Maul is that he yeah. is Darth Maul and the Headless Horseman and Toad in the X-Men movie. Yep. Well, how am I supposed to recognize him when he's using a one handed weapon? If he had two swords on the end of a pole, <laughs> I would have been like, that's Ray Park. And, and I, I just I just want you all to know that that is a fact that I had. I have had in my back pocket since 99 when i got the screenplay that had the full <laughs> cast list and everything i i went i am all in on this movie mm-hmm. and i still am um but that's 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 your connection i uh the thing about this movie and i mean this is this is my first note this didn't have to be where we go but this is just one of the main reasons why i love this so much is this movie is like an entire vibe like the vibe of this movie is exactly what I love about about Tim Burton, about horror, about everything. And I, I'm convinced I had this thought today too. So 
in college when I had to kind of pick my focus for literature, I focused on a very specific type of literature, Gothic Victorian horror literature. And so I am convinced, convinced that that little prick that went into the theater and saw this when he was 10, almost 11 years old, he came out being the person who would ultimately become the gothic horror guy in college. So this movie made me, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's Not to be awesome. Dramatic. Was this shot mostly in a soundstage? Because I was trying to figure out what, how they could have accomplished the fog and just what the fog budget alone was on this movie. I, I think that there are a lot of... There are there are, for the exteriors like of the towns and stuff. I think that they. I'm, were on I'm location, mainly thinking of like the like the, the woods, chase, the chase sequences through the woods, the horse chase with the car- the carriage through the woods, and all the those sequences. I think those were soundstage, but I mean to to be honest, I uh, do you know who did the cinematography for this movie? Oh, I was gonna try to get you with this one. Oh. Dean Cundy. Oh. Nope. Bingo. No, Emmanuel uh, Lebeski <laughs> did it. So, like, who? Dude, Emmanuel um, Lebeski did Children of Men, Gravity, The Tree of Life, Birdman, um, most famously The Cat in the Hat starring Mike Myers. <laughs> like, uh, he dude. Al- he also did a little film called The New World. Oh, yes. He, oh, you would have got me there. Yeah. He, has he done... How many Terrence Malick's has he done? Did, he didn't do Thin Red Line, did he? No. New World was his first with Malick. Okay. Yeah. No, but like, so when I, I remember watching this movie, like when I was watching it today, I had to look up who did the cinematography because I was like, this just looks so good. And whenever I saw that it was Lebeski, I immediately made the Children of Men connection because it has kind of that similar palette, mm-hmm. kind of that darker... Um, but, but like not dark, not the dark realism that you have in, um, in children of men, but kind of like, I love the kind of the darker palette that is used in this movie. It's so cool. I genuinely Um, think children of men is one of the best modern sci-fi movies to exist. And we need to talk about it on the show sometime in the next year or so. Absolutely. You should, you should do children of of men men. children of men. Has the most, or not, from a movie I can recall, the most storytelling solely through background images of, like, anything. It, mm. It's an entire world built with just what's happening in the background that tells you the story. There's not, like, a single moment of juxtaposition in that movie. It just everything mm. happens in the real world to inform you of how these characters live and where they live. It's so good, man. And Clive Warren is just the best. Clive. I love Clive. But, um... <laughs> oh, I, Sean! I, I, it's, a, it's a Pilkington thing. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm always going to call him Clive Warren. It's just, it's a Pilkington joke. I'm sorry. So what I thought, I just started off by saying like actors' names and that, who I thought should be in it, because then that's giving more... It's building. Right, okay, so who's, who's you saying? Who you saying? So I said, right, I'm seeing uh, Clive Warren. <laughs> <laughs> who's Clive Warren? The one who was in Closer. Clive Owen. Clive Owen. 
Right, all right. Did they look at you like you're a fucking idiot? <laughs> so they all started trying to figure out, who's this Clive Warren we've not heard about? Wait, uh, he, he must said, be amazing. Yeah, he's like, Clive Warren, get me Clive <laughs> Warren on the phone. Who's get Clive me Warren? Clive Warren. And I said, uh, Rebecca de Mornay, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, where did that come from? She hasn't been in a film uh, for 15 years, has she? Clive Warren and Rebecca de Mornay. <laughs> they thought he was a genius. They've never thought of putting Clive Warren with Rebecca de Mornay. <laughs> but hang on a minute, you could have... <laughs> You can have any <laughs> film star. This is your fantasy <laughs> casting, yeah, yeah. and you choose a bloke that doesn't exist and a woman who hasn't been on TV or in a film for ten years. Oh God! Why didn't oh. you choose, you know, a, someone who existed Jayla or someone who's a oh, big star? Oh God! Clive Warren. Oh God! Oh. So God. anyway, starts. Clive Warren. Um. So I forgot to say one thing, kind of about my, my um understanding of Sleepy Hollow and and my 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 meet cute with it because I think. I don't know if, if anyone else had a similar experience that I did, but I knew my knowledge of Washington Irving's short story was incredibly limited. It was the headless horseman is a thing. The end. That was my knowledge. Um, I did not read the legend of sleepy hollow until after I watched this movie and I was, I mean, I love Washington Irving. He's one of my favorite American writers, but I will say I was disappointed when I read the story. If you want to see kind of an accurate retelling of, of what happened in, in the story, you want to watch the movie that's often accompanied by Mr. Toad um, <laughs> on a Disney VHS. So, you know, one of the primary differences is that Ichabod Crane is not a hot constable from New York. Um, he's a teacher that's coming to Sleepy Hollow and he's goofy. And like they make fun of him for it. And I remember when this movie came out, my dad, who had read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, um, had, had said, I think it's kind of weird that they have Johnny Depp playing Ichabod Crane. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I, you know, not knowing anything, but still pretending that I did. Well, what do you mean? I thought he was perfectly cast. Who, I mean, who would you choose? And my dad said something that I still think about every time I watch this movie. He said, honestly, I feel like Jeff Goldblum would be a much better Ichabod Crane. And I can't, I can't not think about that now. But if I remember correctly, the, the story has no actual supernatural element. Mm -hmm. It's just the story. And they, uh, they use it pretty much to scare off uh, this new school teacher, Ichabod Crane. And so the scene that you see in the movie where Brahm and his buddies are trying to scare off Ichabod because, you know, they don't want him to, to, to be, to be you know, cramping his style with, with, with Katrina. Are you telling um, me the, the scene where Johnny Rico throws a perfect knuckleball where that pumpkin has zero rotation whatsoever <laughs> as it flies straight into his head? So um, making sure I take the appropriate time to praise you for um, the, a reference to one of the greatest films ever made, Starship Agreed. Troopers. Yes. Yes, that's uh, that's what I'm talking about. It, I, was, I that... loved I love seeing Casper Van Diem outside of Starship Troopers because where else did that guy get the chance? <laughs> yeah, I, he, I've uh, never he... seen him in anything else. I feel like outside of that. Another stupid fact: he and I have the same birthday, so Ooh. he's my twin, kind of. Really? Um, yeah. Come on, you apes! You want to live forever? But anyway, uh, I he, share uh... a birthday with Jodie Foster's character in Contact. <laughs> Okay, this is this is how I, I saw this. And because this is a podcast, this is really going to work for your listeners. I saw it as, I share a birthday with Jodie Foster at this level. 
character at this level <laughs> in contact at this character at this level it's just just descending um but uh but but no i so yeah the, the, the actual sleepy hollow story is um is is present um in spirit but there are a couple of parts in this movie obviously that draw directly from the story aside from the whole headless horseman um mythos the chasing off or attempted scaring off of Ichabod by the uh, the town bullies, and also the frogs uh, croaking um, what sounded eerily like Ichabod, um, also comes from the story. But other than that, uh, Tim Burton and, and company were just kind of doing whatever they wanted, and I think the movie is is better for it because I I wouldn't have been happy with just a there's actually not a headless horseman. It's just a bunch of guys. Josh, I know you went on Best Little Whorehouse in Philly. To talk about the village, mm-hmm. did you get the village vibes from this movie? Um, a little bit, I think, because I maybe from the first time I would have watched the village, I would have gotten it more. I'm primarily thinking of that, like that scene with the guard in the post with mm-hmm. the the giant stakes all around him, and as soon as that man bids <laughs> his son farewell for the evening. Death wish on that man. Yeah. That, that that guy was a goner. Yes. Who who says goodbye to their children like that before just an average day at work? Come on now. Uh, I did want to mention, Dylan, like, you being so very into this movie, I was incredibly into the Disney version when I was a kid. It was, oh, yes. it was the first movie I was obsessed with. And this was, I might've talked about it before. There was a time when you could get, um, video equipment from the library. So my, my family would go and I think there might've even been a beta VCR at this point in time, because it would have been like early eighties. Um, we lived with my grandparents and I distinctly remember uh, borrowing the VCR and then watching that, like coming home from school and just watching that over and over. And my, my mom being like, is, are you okay? <laughs> like, and my son, that, that Disney version of this story has, you want to talk about like the cozy, but spooky vibes, mm. but nothing, like you said, nothing actually happens. It's all Brom, uh, in that mm. version. And I think that that definitely contributed to the type of person that I am today. And I also didn't read the story until I did read it before I saw this version. Um, But it wasn't until I was in high school, I think. And I went on a little Washington Irving kick. Um, And this version, I've never been one of those people that feels beholden to the original version of something when they do a remake, when they do uh, a reboot, when they do a legacy sequel, anything like this, mm-hmm. I'm like, it's a new story. The old one is still there. If I like, if I like that one better, this new one, it can be, it can be good or bad on its own terms. And uh, this, it occupies, it occupies a different place in my brain, but it definitely sits there. And I think you had the screenplay so do you know the writers? Do you remember the writers of this movie? I can't, can't remember the writers. Okay. So the story is by Kevin Yeager and Andrew Kevin Walker. Andrew Kevin Walker wrote seven. 
That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. I, I I remember when I was when I after I saw seven, I remember thinking, oh my God, this movie is the smartest, coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> what else has this guy written? And then I was like, a whole bunch of nothing, but then like randomly Sleepy Hollow in there. And I'm like, this, I now, yes. this explains so much. Uh, and Oh my gosh. Do you know who Kevin Yeager is? Does that name ring a bell? Either one of you. The name rings a bell. Uh, it's because he's one of the designers behind Freddy Krueger's makeup and the Crypt Keeper. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Jo- so so let's <sighs> Sean go ahead I'm still processing Josh can I confess something yeah Alan Armstrong is in this he's the guy that plays like the jailer when we first go to the jail and they're tossing people into the dungeon and whatnot mm-hmm. and I was like god this guy looks so fucking familiar was he in Game of Thrones or what he's in fucking possum we talked about it last episode <laughs> Oh, that's right. Oh. I'm a mess, Josh. Oh, my God. My face blindness is out of control. That's funny. I did the same thing. I was like, who is this dude? (laughs) This this movie is so much. Like, if you could summarize this movie's cast in any way, it'd be that phrase, where do I know that guy from? That guy. That guy. Mm -hmm. When... The first time Depp goes into that room and we have the reverend, the magistrate, whoever else, it's just a room full of that guys. It's, it's, you walk in there and you have, you have, uh, Alfred from Batman forever, Batman and Robin and all those. You have, uh, you have, uh, um, Ed Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh You have Dumbledore. You have Mr. Dursley. Um, and then, you know, they, and Ichabod is sent on assignment by freaking Saruman or Dracula. If, uh, if you're so inclined, mm-hmm. like this cast is stacked. It's insane. Uh, and then of course, Casper Van, Van Dyne, the, 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 the lead, the jewel <laughs> in the crown of this movie. He carries the torch of these character actors and he carries it well. Uh, That's also probably one of my favorite kills in the movie. Okay, I have that- two kills. That are my favorite kills, but his his death was so Dude, good and it's so affecting. His his whole body gets decapitated. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Technically, he cut off his head. <laughs> yeah, just um, cut it off really low. Uh, but the, that, there's a reveal when he and his friends throw the pumpkin at Ichabod, and then they pull uh-huh. open open the jacket to reveal Casper Van Dien, and it's just the most self-satisfied smug look and i was just like hell yeah casper get it he did it he got it <laughs> i um but then there's there's that kill but then the the other kill that just blew my mind even this time is when uh the drunk magistrate gets killed and he gets decapitated so cleanly and so quickly that his head spins on his body <laughs> yeah. and then falls off, lands in Johnny Depp's crotch face first, and then Johnny Depp almost gets stabbed when the Headless Horseman takes the, the head back to his tree, where apparently he's not taking them back to hell like Alfred wants us to believe. He's actually just using them to decorate his tree, which the is dread. Nice. As that skull is rolling down the hill towards Johnny Depp, and it ends up in his crotch, Ooh. and then the head gets skewered 
like a toothpick going into an <laughs> olive so close to his junk <laughs> that that was one of my favorite parts of this movie i did not think we were going to get so many on-screen decapitations oh dude That's, i thought this was you, is this r-rated this has to be right yes Yes. I didn't, you... I didn't, I thought this was PG-13 going into it, I think. So this, oh. this was a, the, the violence was shocking and satisfying for me. <laughs> so Can many decapitations imagine? and like none of them are off screen. Yeah. And like, can you imagine seeing this as in a, like a 10 year old? Cause it's like violence and it's like the best kind of violence for a 10 year old, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's graphic, but it's not authentic. It's I could have like, seen this. This would not yeah. have. I would have been okay with this. This is not I like, feel like this. Never really gets like super scary or tense. The, I I I specifically remember there are two scenes that scared me as a kid, and I know that they scared me as a kid because now I just love them. Like they're the most nostalgic. The first scene is kind of the collection of scenes, um, the dream sequences, Ichabod's dreams about his incredibly you know totally um you know normal not <laughs> witch at all mother um those his, dreams his bosomy mom who floats around yeah, his, in yes. circles yes the, the handsome woman um <laughs> those that those scared me so much um just I, I specifically remember the shot that just gave me so much dread like i'm talking an architect of my nightmares as a child kind of dread is the scene where she's floating up in the air, but then all of a sudden it gets darker and Danny Elfman turns on the minor keys and the music gets more sinister. There's that one. And then, um, so that's kind of the one, the one set of scenes that was really scary. But dude, when, when the horseman goes to kill the midwife and her family and he's like, the little boy is hiding under the floorboards after she gets decapitated and the head rolls and her eyes are just looking down at him and it kind of mirrors Ichabod's mom's eyes from inside the Iron Maiden. Like it's just those scenes scared me so bad as a kid. That Iron Maiden scene was pretty gnarly. The the fact that he seemingly received stigmata-esque wounds that never heal (laughs) from puncturing his palms when he sees his mom inside of an iron maiden was a hell of a thing so okay i actually have a question about iron maidens um because it came up on another and another thing i was reading um but so as a torture device an iron maiden pretty much i mean it, it, i i get a rack like i know what a rack mm-hmm. when you're on the rack and you're being tortured the torturing is that it's being pulled tighter and tighter and tighter. Like, that's the torture part. With an Iron Maiden, I'm assuming that when you close it, is the torture that the spikes are so close to you that if you move, you die? Or is it the more they close it, the closer they get? Or how does an Iron Maiden work as a torture device? I'm currently in book club. We're doing spooky season of short stories. And we read one by... I believe it's a guy named Block, B-L-O-C-H, a toy for Juliet, I think. And uh, Harlan Ellison wrote a sequel to it. And I believe in that one, he goes into detail about Iron Maidens. And he says that there are spikes that go into the eyes, the elbows, the knees, and the ankles. 
and there's a crank that you slowly close the door further and further in, and you don't want to do it too fast because then you rob yourself of the duration of the fun. Oh, okay, that's that's much worse than I thought. It was. <laughs> I, I imagine an Iron Maiden was like, and okay, in this world, everyone is the exact same size. Okay, in this fake world that uh-huh. I'm in my head, and then it, Iron Maiden was just you stood there. And you had to stand perfectly still, standing oh. up straight. I mean, that is torture. Else, <laughs> yeah, or else you get stabbed. Yeah. That's kind of sweet, actually, because I always pictured that it just runs them through immediately. Like, you just close it. That's pretty scary. And I was like, that's not much of a torture device. It's a killing machine. That's what that is. Touche. That's, that's what this movie had me thinking about today, was <laughs> how Iron Maidens actually work. But there's I wanted to There's also a guillotine feature in this movie and just to get my Pilkington reference in at one point Carl Pilkington was relating a story about a uh, a French physician who was sentenced to death and the way Carl Pilkington told the story was that the guy went under the guillotine had his head chopped off and then while his head was in the basket he said count how many times I blink. <laughs> Every single time I see your, your, your AVI, I want to rewatch an idiot abroad. Yeah. Carl that's, is a national I, treasure. I, he's a philosopher of the mundane, mm-hmm. but what are our daily lives? If not mundane, and so why not be fascinated by the life of insects and little things and following dumb thoughts through their conclusions? Genuinely, Carl Pilkington has brought me a lot of peace of mind. Mm-hmm. In a meaningless world, why not focus a bit on like the stupid things that bring you a little bit of pleasure? I'm into that. I, uh, I, I wanted to, to kind of break something down with you all mm-hmm. kind of as a, as a collective, because this story is, I mean, a lot more complicated, I think than it needs to be. Um, you know, I, any story that is so complicated that it needs an entire James Bond villain style. This was my plan all along at the end. That means you've got to take some elements out. But before we get into that part of the story, I want to see if we're on the same page or if we're even in the same book with the Ichabod childhood, like what's being depicted in his dreams. So are we to assume here that Ichabod was raised by a very puritanical father and a very free-spirited, perhaps witch-like mother, and he was really close with his mother, obviously, and scared of his father, which... For obvious reasons, and he was being taught or introduced to kind of spirituality and witchcraft outside of the church. Dad found out about it and ended up just straight up killing his wife. That's what I thought. That's what I think happened. Huh. As you said, this movie was extremely plotty. And normally I like mm-hmm. plot-heavy movies, but like I said with the night I had 
with the dog. I, I just didn't have the focus. And I think so much of this plot happens in like two or three scenes where Johnny Depp is basically in a room pointing at every single character, telling them, you did this because of this, and then this happened because of this, and this happened because... And I'm like, slow down, I can't follow any of this shit, because I, I don't even know who these characters are to begin with. I Van was, Tassel, Van Patten, Van Halen. <laughs> I, did think, I did think this could have been simplified a little bit, mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> There's a scene where he writes down stream of consciousness, the thoughts that are coming out of his head, and it just says, the secret conspiracy points to Baltus. <laughs> that was hilarious when she's like, I think my father read your diary. <laughs> just like open to the page, so obvious. You forgot the most important note on the top of the page, which was something he had already figured out, which is five to four. Yes. He wrote five, the, the top that said five to four. I remember like when I, when I, when I was watching this as a kid, I remember thinking, like, that was so cool. Like, how could it be five victims, four graves? Oh, wait, one of them was pregnant? <laughs> Life begins at decapitation. But, like, I was thinking about that, and and so I was trying to figure out why he wrote that again in his diary. Because I, I love it. I'm pretty sure that Josh and I have the same notes. Because my other note just says, Ichabod conspiracy notes. Oh, my God. Five to four, the secret conspiracy points to Baltics. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to make him into like, okay, this is another thing. They're trying to make Ichabod into almost like a Sherlock Holmesy kind of character mm-hmm. who's figuring this stuff all out. But my question is, like, I never really thought about this until watching it critically for for the for this episode. What is Ichabod? Try, are they trying to do with him? Like. You would think, based on so in the beginning when we first meet Ichabod, you know he's he's not scared, he's not sickened by anything. He's literally fishing a bloated body out of out of the Hudson River, which I, I'm I guess is the Hudson River, mm-hmm. and then for some reason he's become a lawyer, I guess, and is speaking in court on the rights of the accused or something as a police constable and all this, but like. We get this idea that this this guy, this character, if you will, is he's a tough guy. Like he's gritty. He's from the city. He's used to seeing dead bodies and stuff. But the brass, namely Saruman, does not want to deal with him. Um, he's sick of him questioning what they're doing as as a police department, and so he's going to send him north. He's going to send him up to Sleepy Hollow to investigate this decapitation thing. So they kind of get him out of the way. But then as soon as this guy gets to Sleepy Hollow, he completely changes. Like he's scared of everything all of a sudden. He's shaking when he's reading, when he's hearing the stories about the Hessian, which, you know, speaking about differences from Washington Irving to Tim Burton, I love the idea that this horseman is now a German Hessian that just fights because he loves to. And is played by by Christopher Walken. <laughs> um, but my big question is like, what do you all think we were supposed to get from Ichabod as a character? Was he like a kind of a cool, tough guy who knew his stuff? Or was he in over his head despite the fact he was doing this kind of stuff in the city? Like, what's the deal with this? I feel like the removing him from his his place throws him off. Like it reveals the true nature of of 
who he is. Uh, like, if I'm being generous, that's what it is. Uh, if I'm not, it's just they need him to be whatever in any particular scene, and so they write him that way. But the fact that one of the first things he does, they come upon the the headless body um, in the, the path there, and he gets out his gear and he puts on the big goggles with the telescoping lens. And as soon as he bends down, like a, a big beetle or a cockroach comes out of the neck, which it's a great looking neck too. that. Yes. Who, whoever made the effects, that's fantastic. Um, but that, that bug comes out and he jumps back and stands up. Like it's the most frightening thing he's ever seen. <laughs> And that does not seem to comport with the guy who we just saw, like you said, fishing the body out and then wanting to be able to, what do they, they say he's going to eviscerate it or whatever, uh, for his scientific purposes to, to study what happened to the body and blah, 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 blah. Uh, this does not seem like the same dude, but that's my guess has to be. There's something with the city and that's why he returns to the city in the end. Because, as we see, he never actually gets any less scared. Um, mm-hmm. As the movie goes on and like the action ramps up towards the end, he stands behind Katrina. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he human shields her for sure. Yes, absolutely. I'm just like, so in my head, like I love this movie. I wouldn't change anything about it, mm-hmm. but. For, from a storytelling perspective, I feel like it would have been a much more believable jump if the Ichabod we see at the beginning is like not really wanting to do a whole lot in New York um, because maybe he's like he's in over his head in New York. And so it kind of turns on that same thing that all these cozy British mystery shows turn on, which is just, well, if this is too much for him, he can go up to Sleepy Hollow where they never have any bad things happen. And all of a sudden... Headless Horseman, because like if you have this, imagine you have this tough guy cop from New York City, um, you know, like we said, fishing bodies out of the uh, out of the freaking river. If Brom tried his whole Headless Horseman thing on that guy, he would Brom would get shot, mm-hmm. right? He would just be like, oh look, there's the guy that's allegedly decapitating people in this town. Pop, he was. I was defending myself, but I feel like. What they kind of did is they tried to have their cake and eat it too by having this kind of tough, sexy, Johnny Depp Ichabod Crane, but then also have the Bing Crosby, I'm just a teacher who's a little bit nerdy and gets scared about stuff really easily kind of Ichabod once he gets to Sleepy Hollow, which, I mean, it works for me, but from a storytelling standpoint, it kind of had me a little bit befuddled. Uh, I think think those are good takes. I think as a, if he were truly a police constable, who's a man who fishes out dead bodies out of rivers, he would not swing a hatchet the way he does when he's chopping into that tree with his left hand swinging around. He's about to, at any moment, somehow, I don't know how, chop his left hand in (laughs) midair as he's trying to hit this tree with it. And then this movie is also, I think for me, a precursor to the path that Burton and Depp both take that I don't like. And it's that scene where he has the goggles on and it's, wow, isn't this goofy how big his eyeballs are? 
Let's like yeah. make a big show of it to the camera. And it works mm-hmm. in little bits and pieces here in this movie. And then Burton does Big Fish, which probably too long, but for me, I think is his best movie, the most relatable to me. But mm-hmm. then after that, I, the, he just went off the deep end in his own ass end of weirdness. And I don't like when directors get hooked to one single actor. I don't. I find it boring when Scorsese and, and DiCaprio keep working together again and again and again. I want to see things changed up. I want to see something new. And so I think that depth, Burton commitment to that goggle, big-eyed weirdness soured both of their careers for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think uh, one of my notes, and it could be expanded, was uh, this is the a great combination of practical and digital effects that are happening in this movie. Yes. Um, it looks beautiful. It, it's the, it's a great combination of sets and physical locations uh, mm-hmm. because it's very entertaining the way that like you have a little bit of naturalism once in a while, but for the most part you have this like um, expressionistic in mm-hmm. interiors, especially. Um, and there's a lot of like, kind of canted angles shooting up into the corners of rooms as Johnny Depp is like pacing back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone is, you can tell their place in within the, the society of the town by where the camera is placed and how, mm-hmm. how they are framed. I think uh, I, there's a great amount of detail paid to that. And I feel like the same thing with um, Depp and, uh, Burton here, it's like the best balance that you get out of these guys for yeah. the most part. It's got some of the goofiness. It's got some of the the bigger moments that they have later, but a lot of it feels more grounded in the story and not just like, ha 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 ha, look at us kind of being wacky, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I think does absolutely does not work in some of his, some of their later, um, uh, collaborations. Cough. Dark yeah, shadows. There's... Cough. <laughs> I never bothered with that one. This this movie hits a good ratio, and I also maybe there's a sense of real danger in this movie that also doesn't seem to carry through in his later movies. I don't. I I had a roommate at some point with some roommate. I watched the Willy Wonka movie, and I, oh, I dude. I I just I just couldn't I just couldn't with that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's so and I don't know where this will put me in esteem with you all necessarily, but like the one other time I, I, there's something about it's like the perfect co- like collection of elements. It has to be Johnny Depp, has to be Tim Burton, and it has to be R-rated, I think. Mm, yeah. Because I also really love Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. I thought Sweeney Todd, it was, it was good. It, it was, I love that Tim Burton because, and I know what you mean by goofy because like, I would argue that Beetlejuice is so goofy, but it's not that kind of goofy. Right. It's, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's Beetlejuice almost like. Beetlejuice is sinister goofy. Yes. And like Willy Wonka is just like, what it reminds me of is like, oh, it's Johnny Depp doing a silly voice. 
Yeah. And he looks silly. Like, I think it's it's not necessarily goofy. It's silliness. It's, I don't like it when Tim Burton does silliness. Um, and, I like Tim Burton and, to feel threatening because he does yeah. threatening well. Beetlejuice scared me. When I was a kid, we had a hallway. I would often, when I was really young, get scared at night and walk upstairs to jump in bed with my parents. And there was a walk down a hallway that had an uh, an open room to the side of the hallway. And I remember distinctly thinking Beetlejuice, as his arms unfurl, to do the oh. the big mallet thing, <laughs> I, I I just remember having that fear of that existing, and so I I, I like I like my scary gothic Burton um, Burton. I don't like silly campy Burton. Mm-mm. Yeah, no way, man. I um, I I think that this this movie, you can forgive so much of this movie, um, just based on on the way he's so so kind of subtly balances that silliness with it's it's more absurdity than silliness like one of my notes is i don't remember this movie being as funny as it is Mm -hmm. because i feel like you know when i when i used to watch it, like when i first watched it i had it stuck in my head as just a straight up scary movie like a horror movie but like this movie has some funny parts in it and like it's meant to be laughed at it's meant to be, you know, it's it just, you feel weird about laughing about some of this stuff, but that's what early Burton said it was okay to do. The decapitations um, are fun in this movie. They yeah, definitely are. Yeah. And the, and, and I want to jump back briefly to something um, that, that Josh said is just how this movie looks still is insane. Like considering it came out in 99, and I think there are only two parts where it shows its age. And it's where all movies made in the 90s show their age. And it's whenever they use CGI. Um, the witch, when she did her large Marge freak out. Absolutely. And the snakes came out of her eyes. Showed mm-hmm. its age there. And two, it showed its age, but in a charming way, when the skull turned back into Christopher Walken. I but, loved that effect. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I thought that was really cool. I didn't care that it might have aged. I dug what mm-hmm. they were going for there. But like one of the practical effects that just always blows my mind is, and I have no idea how they shot it, but the horse coming out of the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, like notwithstanding like the CGI blood explosion behind the horse when it comes out, like when it shows the horse's like face and, and, and hoofs emerging from the viscera, it's like you're watching a Cronenberg movie and it's just so well done because it looks like it's practical. It caught um, me very off guard the first time that happened, and that was a mm-hmm. holy shit moment. There's a bleeding tree <laughs> with heads inside of it that seemingly is a portal to hell that this black horse just explodes through <laughs> out into our world. Holy yeah. shit, that's awesome. Now, I, I think that n- now that we've kind of... I think we need to talk a little bit about what actually is going on in this story, because I think, I, I, I think first of all, the story works perfectly if it's literally just this, this horseman is mad because he was killed in these woods and he haunts them. The end. I feel Agreed. like if mm-hmm. like, 
I get why they had why they added everything else. I get it because they wanted to like add some levity, I guess, to the story. But I mean, it could be something as simple as someone stole the horseman's skull, and now he is killing trying to find it. It could be something as simple as that. Because instead, what we get is, and please step in if I'm if I'm mistaking any of this, is so you have these two little girls. At the very beginning, when the horseman is running away from the soldiers and after his horse is killed, and he's like, hey, little girls, don't let them know I'm here. Um, and they, of course, snap the branch, let them know they're there, and then he ends up dying. Um, turns out those two little girls were grow up to be main girl, stepmom, mm-hmm. Rishi's stepmom. And um and the witch in the cave. So cave witch, Rishi's stepmom. Um, and they stole the horseman's head and used witchcraft because they know how to use witchcraft because the witches. And <laughs> can't trust using kids it. who grow up in woods. You can't do it, man. You gotta grow up in a large city surrounded by carbon emissions, or else you might be a witch. So they she takes the horseman's skull and decides to use it to get revenge on all of the leaders of the town because her family got kicked off of their property? Or something like that? Or something like that. Because I was she's killing... with you until... I don't know. Because don't she's, know. she's killing all the important people. Like, one she's guy, killing the notary, the magistrate. S- one guy had sex with his servant, and mm-hmm. that... There's like a blackmail plot involved in this too with the stepmom. And I, then I think that that's where they got kicked out of the, where they got kicked off the property. Because I think it's like one of the main town guys boned their mom, the little girl's mom, and then they found out about it. So got kicked off of the property or something like that. But basically she's trying to get revenge for something that happened to her family when they were, when they were little. And she's going through and using the horseman to kill all of these people who wronged her. That's why, like... Correct me if I'm wrong, Dylan, but isn't she also trying to do a wealth grab by killing every single member of her husband's family? Yes. 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 So that's what i think because i mean if you want to get into if i put on my my lawyer hat briefly which is really tight these days because i haven't been back to work in a while because of covid <laughs> but i'm i'm trying to think that like unless no cuz she would still inherit everything even if if her husband is the only one that dies she would inherit everything i think under english common law which would then exist so if she's trying to kill off all of these other people just to get her inheritance that i mean that wouldn't make that wouldn't make sense which is why i think it might just strictly be a revenge thing well the opening shot of the movie is a last will and testament i don't think we see what that document contains Ooh, good point but that we open the movie on that on that document um, and I, I don't know. And then the fact, but then why would she kill her sister? Her sister wouldn't inherit her husband. If she inherited her husband's wealth, that wouldn't go to her sister. No, you're right. No, they kill. Oh, okay. So if you think about who she's killing, she's killing everyone that would have knowledge of that will. 
um, the notary who who notarized yes. it, the magistrate who was you know given the knowledge of all of this stuff, and then she killed that woman who was going to have a baby because okay, I think I see, I think I see where this is going. So yeah, it was it wouldn't be her husband's money, her new husband's money. It would be some other money. I think. I feel like either way, we shouldn't be having to break down this particular puzzle with this particular movie. This feels like <laughs> a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy kind of conversation that we're having right now. Yeah, no. It, By the way, exactly. that movie, I would love to do an episode on that movie sometime because I watched it once and it made almost no sense to me. Oh, I love that I movie. Love that movie. It took me five tries to make it through that movie because I kept falling asleep. And I don't fall asleep during <laughs> movies. That's not a joke. Like, five times. And I still don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, John McCarthy. is It was really good, clarity. and I didn't know what the hell happened. But, I mean, you bring up a good point, which is, like, despite all of this, like, despite this, this convolution, if I can make up a word, if that isn't I do it word, all the time. It's, I mean, technically all words are made up. Shakespeare made up a lot. And so we're basically Shakespeare. Um, all that I can say is like, even with all of these issues, I still freaking love this movie. And I feel like that's a testament to literally every other element. Um, but yeah, dude, that, that story. Oh my gosh. Just give me, just give me Christina Ricci saying the pickety witch the pickety witch who's got a kiss for the pickety witch over and over and people getting their heads cut off for an hour and 45 minutes and you got my butt in the theater man it's sean <laughs> when you asked me about the village like there are more comparisons this is it's the inverse of the village as far as the villain uh, or the the threat in the woods right because the village is the threat is false but you believe it's real the whole time here. Everyone, uh, you know, you're supposed to believe that it's fake for the majority of it. Um, and you got, uh, what Bryce Dallas Howard and Christina Ricci, both being the, the ingenue of the town. And which one's Bryce Dallas Howard? The, in the village. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're telling me she was in this movie today. No, which would be uh, astonishing. I'm with you. I'm yes. with you. I'm, I'm paranoid about my face blindness now after today. I'm with you. <laughs> Dude, she was the horseman. Did, okay. <laughs> Did you recognize Emperor Palpatine in there? No. Okay. Which one? He was the one that she was making out with on the... Uh... On the porch, right when Ichabod shows up, yeah. the one that looks a little bit like—I uh, I, don't—I don't know who imp I'm trying to picture Emperor Palpatine. I'm picturing a gaunt, sunken-eyed Englishman. Okay, think about chant. Think about um, Star Wars Episode One, the a surprise to be sure, but a welcome one. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> seen those movies in a long. Oh, um, that that. Guy. Uh, never mind. Yeah, it's. I thought there was an actor in this movie, but uh. you, th you thought there was an actor. Right, in wait, it? is isn't is is one of the actors from Naked Gun three in this movie? <laughs> what a pull! <laughs> the guy who plays the doctor in the wheelchair. I 
think he's in this movie. No, that's Naked Gun 2. That's Naked Gun 2. So, who, who was the actor? Um, Does he play one of the main guys? Because I can tell you who the main guys are. <laughs> it's, hold on, let's see if I can do this. It's Palpatine, Dumbledore, Ferris Bueller's principal, mm-hmm. Alfred, and, um, and uh, Vernon Dursley. I think that's all five of them. Yeah. That's insane that that cast <laughs> and they're and they're all being fought by by Willy Wonka. And. OK, how many of those guys, because they're all British. Uh, Thez mm-hmm. Um how many of them were either in a Hammer film or some some variety of a Dracula, do you think? I think all of them. And also, I think Palpatine's Scottish. Richard oh. Griffiths. Richard <gasps> Griffiths. You are right. Is in Naked Gun 2, and he's in this movie. Yes. Sleepy Hollow. Hey, and he's Vernon Dursley yeah. in Harry Potter, right? Yep. Absolutely. He was also in the stage production of History Boys. I don't know why I know that. I almost just said O.J. Simpson is also somewhere in this movie before I realized I'm still looking at the <laughs> Naked Gun cast. <laughs> Yeah, O.J. Simpson was the horseman. Take, take it easy, Josh. <laughs> if the head don't fit, you must acquit. Oh, that that tickled me a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh. I um so I want to talk briefly about something very near and dear to my heart, which is the accents in this movie. Um you see, I have to nitpick to find things I don't I don't like about this movie because it's a perfect film. But um like I don't know why accents in movies bother me so much, but like the collection of straight up American accents to English accents to bad English accents Mm -hmm. really threw me. And especially this time I had a specific note that just said Christina Rishi's accent, everyone (laughs) that accent that was like Dinklage game of Thrones level. What? And I I kind of love it. Okay. okay. Was Dinklage known to have a bad accent in Game of Thrones? It was it was bad, dude. But England didn't exist in Game of Thrones. Which is weird because they all have English accents. <laughs> I apparently I don't notice accents at all because I didn't even check the fact that there's American and English and all sorts of different accents going on here at all. Okay, I have a really weird story for why I noticed that now, and it connects to this movie. So, when Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens came out, and their theories started going everywhere based on who, who Ray's parents were, accents became a big point, because John Boyega is English, but he used an American accent in the movie. Daisy Ridley is English and used an English accent in the movie. And so in my head, I was like, okay, in Star Wars A New Hope, Luke uses an American accent and Obi-Wan uses an English accent. So it became a, well, her parent had to have, or her ancestor had to have an English accent. And that's how we connected it. And so since that freaking movie, 
I pay so much attention to accents in movies. <laughs> like it means something. Spoilers, it usually doesn't. Do you like that guy who does the accent breakdowns? He's a vocal coach oh, on YouTube I like for like that Vanity guy. Fair or something. I love that guy. Is he also the one that did the like accents from all over the United States videos where he just does like that really vid quick video where he just talks how everyone talks? Maybe. I didn't see those. But the way he breaks down the physical voice itself and how mm -hmm. different dialects physically vocalize different sounds it's pretty fascinating whenever i get too deep into that area of youtube and i get in those videos where they compare the southern accent to the english accent and why it would sound that way i always freak out a little bit because <laughs> time means nothing <laughs> you know and they're like because they have a way of speaking with a southern like with a southern accent just talking like this but they talk in such a way that all of a sudden you start to realize that oh look it's actually english whoa but, um, how did you do that <laughs> but so okay that was like a magic trick right in front of my <laughs> own ears this is kind of an aside and is unrelated. It's related to what I just said, but not related to the movie. But I've been thinking about it all week. I was listening to an interview with Maddie Healy from the 1975. And he was talking about music that he likes. Um, he, so he's Matt, a Nor Sorry, who's Maddie Healy? Maddie Healy is the front man for the 1975. Okay. That's a band. Your favorite band of all time. I gotcha. <laughs> and, uh, but, but what he, what he said is that he always loved country music and like this, like Southern folk music, because he said he was like being from the North, being from Manchester, a Northerner. I was like, like the, we have our North, like the Americans have their South. And it started to break my brain thinking that, you know, when you think about a Southern accent, a lot of people think like it's, it doesn't sound smart. Um, there's a lot of connotations associated with that accent. And in the UK, you kind of have the same thing with the Northern accent. You know, the people from Manchester, I talk like this. And it's just so bizarre to me that their South is in the North. I don't know. <laughs> I think my brain is broken. I have COVID head. So you know who else is from Manchester? Who? Carl Girl, fucking Pilkington. Everything comes back together. Everything comes to Carl. Everything's coming up, Carl. So, I mean, with this show, I basically steer everything back to Carl. It's just, <laughs> it's just what I do. Josh, Josh just puts up with it and doesn't even bother <laughs> protesting anymore. Um, Josh is a good sport. He he gives me a lot of leeway, especially on Friday nights. <laughs> uh, I feel like uh, I really should at some point. You know, invest a little bit of time into Carl Pilkington. Wait, I'm sorry. Have we never gone over the fact? Do you not know anything about him? I know Dude, very, you gotta do it. very little. And wait, wait, wait. The thing is, how have we never, how have we never discussed this? Uh, you never seen like his travel show. I've seen maybe bits and pieces. Oh. He was in bits and pieces, God. right? No. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm. I. We might. A special I, edition. I, I'm going to figure show. out what to do with you. It might be a side podcast. It might be an addendum show. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'll, I'll figure out what to do with you. I, I need to give you a crash course in Pilkington. Sean, what was your first exposure to Pilkington? 
uh, the HBO animated show. Same. I was in Same. college at Colorado, and um, just in a weird time in my life, and so I watched that, and I watched the first episode, and I thought it was Ricky and Steve interviewing their friends. And so the first episode I watched with was with Carl. I'm like, oh my god, this guy's hilarious. Uh, that sucks that he's just on for this one episode. And then I watched the next animated episode, and I was like, oh my, he's still on here. And then they mentioned so something good. about a radio show. And I, <clears throat> I googled them and found an archive to their like 100 recorded radio episodes and that was like the i just remember walking my dog lucy who was a fat golden retriever and we went on walks every day and we listened to carl pilkington and ricky and steve and i would giggle and we'd walk along this creek and she lost a lot of weight in the last few years and just really positive happy memories in a time where i was a really dark cynical asshole Dude, I need to find that archive. I watched the show, I mean, the show on HBO, and then I did every single miniseries or Netflix show or show that I could find. And Josh, it's well worth your time. It's so funny. It's like, even if, it's like a one-two punch because the two things I love the most about that HBO show were both... Carl's observations, but then Ricky Gervais's reactions to the observations, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's it's just so worth it. But I um I I it just it. sucks because Ricky also now sucks, and it's just yeah. like the Ricky Gervais that I know and like listening to all these old recordings from like the early mid two thousands. That guy talked so much shit about fame craving celebrities who go on and on about their politics and everything else. And now that's exactly what he is And the whole Mm -hmm. point of his show extras was that Andy Millman fame is a mask that eats into the face. And the fact that Ricky didn't understand the point of his own show where now (laughs) his fame has eaten to his mask. And now that mask is his face and he's just on Twitter seeking fame from all of the people who were just after his quotes and him calling people cunts and just all of his catchphrases. And it's the exact same arc that he did in extras and like the dramatic irony that he (laughs) doesn't see this is mind blowing to me. God, man, (laughs) I could do like a thesis about Carl, Ricky and Steve and like the dynamics of that and everything. been a big part of my life. It's, uh, honestly, it's why we're here. Um, that that was like the start of my love for podcasting. Then after that, I found Earwolf with Comedy Bang Bang and that whole community, which led to with Gorley and Rust. And which led to we're us. Here. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I uh, I think it's I just just to bring it all bring it all back home. I want you to realize that we would not be sitting here today if it were not for you in Colorado discovering that HBO show and me when I was 10 years old going to see Sleepy Hollow in the theaters <laughs> and Josh just being a really nice guy and letting us come and chat and talk about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 
Josh is but, just the universal magnet that just attracts all of the good people. And uh, I, I, that whole idea of determinism and butterfly effect and stuff. That, there's a reason that I fucking loved everything everywhere all at once so much, mm-hmm. especially coming out of the pandemic. But the idea that there's billions of realities that were just a step away or it, mm-hmm. a turn of the car away, or you sit at this seat at a bar or whatever. It, it Eventually we're going to talk about that movie on this show too. And mm-hmm. I'm probably going to cry talking about that movie. It's no, it's, it's, it's something I think about this a lot actually. And I love that this is coming up in a discussion about sleepy hollow because there's nothing to sleepy hollow. <laughs> but you know, as, as you get older and I feel like this has been happening to me a lot, especially after becoming a dad, because I feel like becoming a dad ages you like 10 years mentally, but not physically, because, you know, people joke around about how the moment you hold your child, you realize your own mortality, but jokes on them. I've always known about my mortality, (laughs) but uh, it's, it's just like, I think so much about the idea of regret and, missed opportunities and things like that. And then I think about where I am right now and I'm like, I, I can't regret anything that I've, that I've done. Absolutely. Because I wouldn't be where I am without those decisions. And you know, that, that really helps me sleep at night. Like I, I feel like this could t- be taken completely out of context. Like I didn't kill anyone. I didn't do anything like oh, bad no. in my past, but like, no. you know, dis- decisions like, should I have gone like a lot of times I think about, you know, should I have taken time off after college to figure out if I wanted to go to grad school or to law school? Should I have done that? You know, would I be happier or more or more stressed? How would that work out? And then I say, you know, I just have to stop myself and say, no, if I had to do it all over again, I would do literally the exact same thing every time because I don't want this to change, you know? I would still take a dump in that McDonald's, even though it was a nasty bathroom, because that <laughs> dump led me here. Um, but, well, but that was, a, it was a really beautiful sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but like, you know, I, Dylan, I think about that. I'm I'm 36, and I'm my life is not where I want it to be. Mm-hmm. But I I think I've reached a healthy place mentally. I'm on mm-hmm. good standing with my family. My family's mm-hmm. in a good place. I have wonderful friends, wonderful community surrounding me. Just because things might not be perfect right now, I the things that I've gone through have given me foundation now, and I'm taking steps forward. And so, yeah, there's like mm-hmm. regrets that maybe I have, or like, oh, I could have taken that girl to a dance in high school. But in the long run, I'm at a place where I'm like at largely at peace right now with myself. And so I, I, so it means I can't really have any regrets because I'm here right now talking with two awesome buds and having like an amazing conversation about, I I did not think these conversations (laughs) about these two movies were going to go to these places, but it's Friday night and here we are. (laughs) Sleepy Hollow makes you think. I mean, like, how how am I going to say this? Like, whenever 
I go through rough patches because I mean, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not shy about this fact. I think I've even talked to Josh about it, but like I've spent most of my life struggling with depression and anxiety and all that stuff. And, and I am a, a massive, massive proponent of, of therapy, of, of, of medication. If you need it, like there's no shame in that ever at all. But like, I think about that a lot and I struggle with that a lot. And when I had those times when I was just miserable, felt awful, hated everything, even had maybe not some super exciting thoughts that, that you want to be having. Yeah. I remember thinking when it comes to regret and when it comes to things like that, like take the bad things that you think you have in your life, but then also take the good things. How many are there? One, two, it doesn't like, I mean, it doesn't, the number doesn't matter, but like, just think about the good things and the bad things. If you did something differently in your life, if you changed in some way, if you chose a different path, you might gain something over here on this bad side, but you lose something on this good side. And everything is a balance. And that, I mean, it's a hard thought to swallow. It still is for me. But it's just this idea of being able to focus on those things that, that you know, not, not like a nostalgia kind of thing, but focus on those things that, that, that light me up and not those things that turn the lights out. And that has really helped me. And I mean, that's just something that it, you know, I, I hate to keep bringing it up, but it's like a large part of my personality now. Um, but like becoming a dad has really just thrown all that into perspective because like now it's like, I have a, a tangible physical representation of my own happiness, just like outside of my body, just existing with a social security number, right? And so I think about that. And now I think about everything, every, every thought, every bad thing, every bad choice, every re- potential regret, every question. If those all hadn't gone exactly that way, I wouldn't have my daughter. And that just like, that's not something you could have, I would have believed if you would have told me that when I was 25, if you would have told me that when I was, you know, 19, my brain didn't think that way. You just have to keep thinking about the positive and keep focusing on those light moments. And when you move forward, it just, time works out that way. And it's just, oh, and Sleepy Hollow just really makes me think, <laughs> really makes me think about that. But, um, but I don't know. Josh, you got any really heavy insights before you jump back into this movie? Well, I was going to say, and I, we have talked about this uh, in our, our text or whatever, Dylan, um, mm-hmm. but the, I've also struggled. I've, the thing that I wanted to change is when I went and sought help for, mm-hmm. um, I've been diagnosed as, as bipolar and that controlled a lot of my my life i mean um i always described myself as like a a goblet filled that was about to run over at any time and that was my emotions they were always like going to spill over and it didn't matter what type of emotion i was feeling that and it was going to get all over everybody it was going to be very messy it was a goblet of blood Right. Like it's going to stain and it's going to leave marks on everybody who's around and trying to basically, um, 
parse the fact that I have what I consider to be these lost years where that was my entire life. And I have a hard time remembering things even from that period because that's what depression and bipolar does to your brain. <laughs> like it physically changes the, the landscape of it. Um, and so a couple of years ago, um, when I was kind of getting healthy, right. Getting therapy, getting on meds, I ran across, there was a piece of graffiti here in Nashville that said, um, you never know what troubles your troubles kept you from. And that resonated mm-hmm. with me so deeply. Like what else would I have done? Also negative. Like you think about how things might've held you back from a positive, uh, that you could have achieved in your life, but also what other negative things would have happened to me? What other dark paths could I have gone down? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of my way of like trying to balance those two things of having some genuine regret of um, what I could have been in the past and maybe should have been. And a lot of that for me would revolve around relationships and how I treated people um, and how I was able to treat them, the attention and space that I was able to give to people. Whereas now that's, it's one of the things I'm known for is my kindness towards people and my openness. Um, And I wish that I would have found that sooner, but also I wouldn't be here. And Mm -hmm. here, like you guys said, here is pretty great. Like here is a good place Mm to be. Um, you know, I've I've I, I've been to your house. Yes, it's, it's a special place. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say Sean's been here, <laughs> and I was able to host my nice friend, and we went out for several good meals, and we played D and D for hours, and I got to be the little magnet, like Sean said, of these orbits of our friends that circle around. Um, Russell was here. My buddy Eli from the other podcast was here. Um, and Ed that I know through my wife through improv comedy. Um, my wife who I met doing comedy and was my first podcast partner 11 years ago. Mm. And we were both married to other people then and both very innocent towards about our attraction towards each other. Um, until we met again years later, that's one of those weird examples of, you know, the troubles that I went through directly led me to her and the same with her Mm. towards me. Like our paths were kind of created by the troubles that we had had. I mean, I met her again through a job that I had. I only had that job because of a previous breakup. So <laughs> like, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's kind of beautiful the way these things work out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the, uh, the poster to pie said, uh, Faith and chaos, or something like that. The tagline for Pi, uh-huh. which was our first episode ever that we were great episode, great movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what else is great? Horseman making a harpoon out of a fence post to launch through a man's chest through a window and then drag him outside to then decaffeinate de- 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 him. <laughs> Deca- all, all I'm gonna ever, say is, ever since I saw Hot Fuzz, anytime I see decapitated, I want to make the joke decaffeinated. 
all dude, like all I'm gonna say is this proves that you don't need to have a head to be able to problem solve. You just need to be determined. And Homeboy threw his axe. All that the people of Sleepy Hollow were trying to do was to lawfully assemble. That's a constitutional right, okay? They're trying to lawfully assemble in a church, okay? That's another constitutional right for your religion. (laughs) Once they got in the church, what did they have? They had weapons. That's a right to bear arms. That's also a constitutional amendment. So we got all these amendments covered. You got this horseman outside, right? But he can't get in the church. You know why? Because he's not Christian. That You can't do that. He's cursed. So he throws his axe, right? And to prove the point, the axe goes away. Practically a morgul blade. Am I right? And so what does he do? Does he give up? No. He's tenacious. He's headless, but he's tenacious. So he comes up with this amazing and innovative, I would argue, um, device that you described, the harpoon. And he harpoons Dumbledore, pulls him out of the church, and then he does <laughs> what in my notes say, unbelievably clean cut through a fence like that on the head. And, um, and what do they say? Now, do they add a line that his blade cauterizes the, the mm-hmm. wounds? That's got to um, be an MPAA workaround, right? To avoid having blood spraying gallons all over this movie? Or I well, guess it's well, rated R, though, so it wouldn't matter. Well, it's because they want to specify. That's another, that's another one of my notes. They want to specify that it was the devil's fire, which, you know, we've all heard of, that <laughs> uh, cauterizes wounds without scarring or blistering. I mean, if I'm going to be stabbed by a knife, that's the knife I want to be stabbed by. Yeah. It's An like instantly a... cauterizing knife? But I just want yes, to be, please. I only want to be stabbed you. a little bit by it. Like... No, that's, I mean, like, that's what Johnny Depp gets. He gets, like, the uh, the scream, the uh, Matthew Absolutely. Lillard little side poke stab. Hey, you, want, you guys want to know something? What? I want to tell you that the Headless Horseman's sword that immediately cauterizes a wound isn't the only sword that Ray Park has used that immediately cauterizes wounds. <laughs> <laughs> He also does it in the Star Wars film. Oh, oh my gosh. He I, also decapitates a man at the waist in that movie. Yeah. Yep. Do you, oh, no. He, no, wait. He gets decapitated oh, at the there waist. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's karmic. It is karmic. I, um, I, I, I didn't also, laugh at it. Before, before people think I'm an idiot, I know it's bisected, but decapitated at the waist is way more fun to say. Do you, uh, do you think. If someone gets bisected like that, um, do you think it's more logical to say that they cut? Are you a, are you a body top half of the body half off or a lower half of the body half off kind of guy? I thought you were going to ask me if he's caught hot dog or hamburger style. <laughs> it's is that, that's how I'm going to start distinguishing things. Is I'm going to be like, okay, is, is it is it is it hot dog style like on Terrifier? Or hamburger style, like in Star oh, Wars no. Episode One. Oh no! What's, what are we talking about? I um, I have. I don't know where you all are at with this. I have two more notes mm-hmm. on this movie, and they're both, I think, very okay notes. Um, first one, very big fan of the scarecrows in this movie. Good scarecrows. Mm, yeah. 
I think that scarecrow at the very beginning that has uh, the old dude's blood sprayed on it after our second decapitation of the film um, with the arms out like this, like he's riding the motorcycle. That's my favorite scarecrow, followed closely by the one that spins around um, after the fat, drunk magistrate gets killed. Um, My second note, though, is this makes me laugh every time I see this movie. My quote is, I'm going to show her some optics because girls love optics. <laughs> Whenever Johnny Depp pulls out the thing that his witch mom gave him and like the sincerity with which he's explaining it, not only to Christina Rishi, but to us where he's like, all right, on one side, a bird, other side, empty cage. But when you put them together and then, okay, she's smart. Right. Like she's a smart person. Christina Rishi's character is smart, but she automatically just goes, you know, magic teach me. Oh my gosh. Is that the album? Yes. Josh is currently holding up the vinyl record for the soundtrack and flipping it back and forth. And side a is the cage and side B is the, the free bird. Hold on, Josh. You didn't tell me. You know magic. Can you teach me? <laughs> that's when you. That's when you have to say, with in a very cocksure way. You have to say, "That's not magic. That's what we like to call optics." And when he says "we," he means not stupid people. Is what I'm assuming. But anyway, sorry. That was my so rant about optics. This man. This thing reminds me. There's there's some toy I had. It was a wooden toy, and I believe it was like a traditional Native American toy. And I <gasps> swear it was two handles with something in the middle. Yes. And when you pull the handles, it goes... <laughs> because I think it's a small version of an instrument called a bull roar. Yep. And a bull roar is a piece of wood that's basically like a propeller shape on a long piece of rope. And if you're familiar with the later seasons of the Hannibal TV show, it's the it's the instrument you swing it around your head and it goes. And it was like the sound of madness on that show. And so this little device was bringing up, speaking of nostalgia, somewhere deep memories of these wood toys that I had as a kid, but I, I can't lock in specifically what that memory is. That's, oh. that's weird. Cause you just like unlocked one for me. Cause I had one of those things and I think it was painted like red, like half red and half blue. And so it was supposed to look like purple when you pulled the thing, you know, it, was, it had a dual effect. It had some optics had to it. Toy. Yeah. It had optics. some optics. I feel like, we all had the same childhood and we all had the same toys, but the government doesn't want us to know that. <laughs> that's that's the problem, okay? That's what I'm do, figuring out here. Do you guys also have but, Uncle um, Bill's? Because I uh, I met a lot of people with Uncle Bill and I was the only one. through American movie. Oh, by the way, rest in peace, Mike oh, Shank yeah. from American movie passed away recently. I was genuinely sad. I broke down crying one night playing whatever music I could think that I know from that movie that he played that I learned with my guitar teacher like 15 years ago and Mike just seemed like just a real sweet guy who had some wild journeys on the psychedelic side that might have changed him permanently but 
what a loyal friend that guy seemed to be. And I was genuinely sad to see Mike Shang die. So rest in peace, bud. We dedicate this episode to you. We do. We do. And you know I, what? I say as not far, as a host of the podcast. <laughs> as far as far as I know, from what I read, he he passed away twenty something years sober or whatever. So from whatever time that him. whatever time that was recorded, that documentary until uh, the time he died. So that was just a little uh way to bring this episode down. This has been a real roller coaster of an emotion of an episode. Hey, man. I've loved this episode. This is why I started the show. <laughs> Honestly, it was not, not to do, like, research. I don't want to do research about movies. I want to get into, like, big, weird conversations with friends that we normally wouldn't otherwise get to. But through the conversation of movies, it opens up these paths or things that we might otherwise be uncomfortable talking about. But because it's in the movie, now we're here talking about it. And um, and thank you, Dylan, for being here hey. and being vulnerable with us. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. What, what I've learned in my 33 years is that that, uh, that pathway... You're just a baby. You're just a gift. little baby. I'm just a little <laughs> tiny baby boy. Just a little, <laughs> little baby. Um, what, what, what this little baby boy has learned is that <laughs> no that way. gate, that pathway underneath that tree doesn't lead to hell, leads to understanding. <laughs> and so I'm so glad Aww. that we got to talk about this. But I, uh, I, do you all have any other thoughts about one of my favorite movies or are we going to rate this thing? We got to, we got to talk what? about walking real quick. <laughs> we got to talk walking. We have not talked walking or his razor sharp teeth. Or the fact that at the end, he, like, vampire bite kisses her mouth. It, I thought she was he was going to, like, rip her lips off, but she didn't. Her face looked okay after that. But just walking in general. Also, he looked so young in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought it was a, uh, in retrospect, very ballsy choice by uh, Tim Burton to cast Christopher Walken who is has a very iconic speaking voice and have him only scream. <laughs> yeah. I had that note. Yeah. I I also want to I want you to know that I Mandela affected something else at the end of this movie. Um so I went through a period of time where I didn't watch it for like maybe 10 years, 12 years something like that. Um I don't know why, but I had this Mandela effect thing where I was like after he got his skull back and he walked over and approached Katrina and Johnny Depp, like before turning around and going back into his, into his, his old tree house. Um, I meant to affected that he went, thank you. <laughs> he doesn't clearly he doesn't, but could you imagine, can you imagine if for the entire movie he says nothing? And then at the end, he just gives like the most walk in like, wow, my head. Thank you. Like that would be, that's the only thing yeah, that could have made this movie choice. better. <laughs> Where's George Lucas when you need him? Uh, Josh, you got anything else? Uh, I had the quote, Villainy wears many masks, none so dangerous as the mask of virtue. I like that. Yeah. Ooh. That's a good line. Mm-hmm. Fancy. Uh, 
I think I would give this one. I loved this conversation and this. The plot's not perfect, but this movie vibes really hard. This is four out of five. Just like on vibe alone. I love the clean decapitations. Ray Park's sword work is cool. Like anytime Headless Horseman is on screen with the horse, I'm like, this is cool. I don't like when that lady decapitates that bat. It's clearly fake, but I still, it's just like, I don't like when you cut that head off that bat, the witch sister. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was really fun. And this was like, the, just like we said a long time ago, that right ratio of dark, gothic, threatening Burton with a little pinch of depth silliness thrown in mm-hmm. there just for some spice and at some point that chili got way out of control <laughs> with way mm. too much depth spice and stuff but this one is spot on uh, Dylan what would you say I mean I feel like if if you all can't guess that I'm going to say 5 out of 5 I've done a <laughs> terrible job of hyping this movie up I love this movie I um, it's one of those movies that people of a very specific generation will understand what I mean when I say this is one that I own. Like I would own this on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray and digital. Like this is a movie that as my collection evolved um, or as TV evolved, my copy of this would also evolve. Um, There are very few movies that make that jump past more than one generation. Sleepy Hollow is one of them. That's awesome. Shadow of the Colossus for me. So good. <laughs> I love Josh, climbing on back yourself? hair. Uh, it, it gets four stars. It is definitely. Uh, Dylan, I don't know if you know, like I reserve my, my fifth star for things that get me emotional. Uh, mm-hmm. And this didn't, doesn't get there. But I, I do not care about the plot of this movie. It is it's, so good so without it's fine. it. It's fine. It's, it's okay that it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. It's, mm-hmm. It is kind of like a Bond film in that way where I'm like, no, show me some cool locations and, and some cool action and give me some wacky characters for Bond to interact with. That's all I need. I don't... Oh, I mean, and the windmill set piece at the end we didn't mention. But so, I, I, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. And like jumping on a windmill blades to then ride them down to safety. That's it's awesome. very Franken, very Frankenstein esque. Yep, I was gonna say because in Frankenstein that dude falls on the blade. Uh, I think Frankenstein throws him off the top of it and he falls on it and they get, they get him at the bottom. Um, but yeah, four four out of five and and a little heart. I love giving things heart. So this is uh, we'll do some plugs here. I'll start to give you guys some time to think about a movie or a book or a show or an album that you've been digging so i will say that um recently i hosted a a double feature and ready or not super fun samara weaving amazing in that movie but terrified a movie from argentina this goes on it's it's close to a session nine as far as movies that are able to get under my skin and creep me out this movie you got to watch it in a dark pitch black room but I really feel like if you allow yourself to commit to it and to commit to being creeped out by it, and if you, if you give yourself to the movie, 
it will creep you out and get under your skin. And there's some there's some shots in this that are that perfect combination of both dread-inducing and a long jump scare, where it's a jump scare, but you feel it for like three seconds as it's happening, and it's not just one sudden violin shriek. Uh, it, it's just a badass movie. So, Terrified from 2017. Uh, Josh or Dylan, who's ready to go next? Um, I'll go. And I actually plugged this on Stagecoach Justice as well. So, uh, if you do listen to that, Russell, um, you know, you've already heard this. But I watched. I used to, but all the movies you guys review are old. Tell, tell <laughs> me when you're doing like Tombstone and. 310 to Yuma with <laughs> Russell Crowe. <laughs> not not the original. Um You know how I feel about old movies. I know. I'm sorry. We, we did a like an 80s movie this last time. Also you guys you guys watch like four movies per episode. It's insane over there what's happening. I I put the kibosh on that. That okay. that had to end. It was <laughs> Okay, that was nuts. I'm happy. I was was watching 15 movies a week just for podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. Uh, But I wanted to mention uh, El Yucarda uh, from 1977, directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma. Um, It's kind of a nunsploitation, kind of a teenage lesbian love story. Kind of a witch movie, kind of a Dracula's movie. Um, as someone else said, this movie's batshit crazy. Uh, it is really fun. There is uh, only a, I think, a DVD version of this out there floating around. It's not been upgraded. Um, but it's still, it's a very watchable print. Like, the print hasn't been cleaned up. It didn't get uh, great treatment. Um, the other nice thing about it, it is less than 80 minutes long. If that's beautiful. I know it's, that makes me so happy. Um, I watched it because it was on Guillermo del Toro's list of the thousand best movies or his thousand favorite movies, whatever it was that's on letterboxd. Um, and I wanted to check it out because it was, I think it was pretty high on this list if I recall. Uh, and I can definitely see just on, the mood and the, the visuals of it alone, what he would have pulled from, because that's what the movie relies on the plot. Once again, the plot doesn't really matter. It is all vibes and spookiness and, uh, nuns being made to do things that they don't want to do by evil forces. It's great. I love it. Dylan, what you got? I, uh, I have a author slash book a um album and a movie that i want to talk to y'all about okay um the author is a guy he's a norwegian author um who i just now started reading uh his name's carl of nausgaard i know i'm not pronouncing that right i can't pronounce norwegian i guess in Icelandic it'd be like nausgaard um or something like that but he is so good he's perhaps best known for a six book cycle called my struggle um, which were autobiographical, like <gasps> oh, incredibly yes. autobiographical, like, yeah, like people had to like, were bothering his family about it, but he just released a book this year called the morning star. Um, that is kind of creepy, but really good. Um, and I really, really like it. The uh, basic premise is just about a random star 
that just appears and rises in the sky in Norway and well, obviously everywhere, but it's in total from the perspective of these people in Norway. And uh, it's, it's very good. Uh, he's an excellent writer. He's been compared to Proust a whole lot. And I'm going through a big Proust phase. Um, so check him out. He's great. A movie, you know, I thought about talking about the Star Trek movies that I've been watching, but I want to pick something. I thought about picking horror, but I want to do something a little bit random. And I want to recommend a movie that got almost no attention, I feel like, outside of the random circles that, that I find myself in. Um, it was a movie from 2018 called All is True. And it uh, it's a movie about Shakespeare's last years of his life. And it was directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh. And it was written by uh, Ben Elton. And I described this movie on, I used to have a Shakespeare podcast called The Lunatic, The Lover, and The Poet. And on that show, I described it as watching it as being that experience where you're watching something that you know is going to be one of your favorite movies. Um, and I have that very few times, obviously. I think we all do. But this movie was an absolute game changer. Um, and I highly recommend it. And um, it kind of looks like Sleepy Hollow, so it kind of fits in, I guess. But then the album I want to talk about is um, The Car, the new Arctic Monkeys album. It is so good, y'all. Um, I, uh, I've been following the Monkees since their first album in 2006, no, 2005. Um, and I've loved every iteration of the band that's come out, but they've stuck with the kind of lounge singer sound that they had in Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino. And it just really allows Alex Turner's songwriting to show. And I am of the school of thought that he's one of our, he's one of my favorite living songwriters. So the car, Arctic Monkeys, Carl of Nosgaard, Norwegian writer, and All is True, the historical epic of William Shakespeare's last years in Stratford-upon-Avon. Awesome. Dylan, before we, before I forget, we are approaching Christmas, and you, my friend, wrote a Christmas nightmarish tale <laughs> that did. was released last year. And I'm mm. really sorry I'm blanking on the name, but I did tell you last year that I shared it with my brother-in-law who read it to his two sons, my nephews, mm. and they were <laughs> freaked out by it. Could you please tell me again and with the audience? I'll, I'll put a link to it in the, in yes. the episode description. So, what, what is that story? So it's called uh, Krampusnokt. It's uh it's a story that I wrote last year and Dylan Black, my buddy, is um edit is illustrating right currently. And it's set to go live on December fifth, which is actually uh Krumpus Night. Um for those of you that, that don't know, um Krumpus is basically evil Santa. Um the movie Krumpus is is about him. But uh I felt like he deserved his own Twas the Night Before Christmas kind of story, and so I couldn't find one, so I wrote one. And uh, Dylan's art that he sent me is breaking my brain in the best possible way. So, um, Oh, I, I, I just saw a very rough copy then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow, just, I didn't even realize, because that was, yeah. oh, man, I, I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be ready. But uh, but yeah, and it's it's great because it's like it's like a ten to fifteen minute read, 
Yeah. But it 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 has the whole rhyme structure and like the Christmas spirit. <laughs> but it just has that sinister Christmas spirit. Also, um I think th- for Christmas I want to make Josh watch Rare Exports, which is a mm. movie that you would be into if you're into the Krampus. Oh, dude, I am in Krampus, I trust. <laughs> so check out Rare Exports. I'm I'm pretty sure we're going to do an episode on that um, towards the end of December, if I get my way. Um, end of November for Thanksgiving, we're going to be doing a Thanksgiving feast episode featuring Ravenous and another movie which I don't think has been determined. No, there's been a Wrong. few things around. Um, but... Next episode in between those has not been discussed if josh and i discuss it before this episode's released i will edit in here next week we'll be recording a noir vember episode featuring blowout by brian de palma and the friends of eddie Coyle by some other director if not we'll figure (laughs) it out and i'll just announce it on our discord uh josh you got anything else dylan thank you again this was Truly one of my favorite episodes. Uh, just the kind of discussion that I wanted to to get going with the show. So Perfect. I'm thank so you glad. For being I had here. so much fun. I had so much fun, man. You all you all are, you know, good conversations only come when you're talking with 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 good people, I feel like. The quality of conversation is determined by the quality of, of participants. And so it wouldn't have been a good conversation without without you all. So thank you so much for, for allowing me to be in a place where those conversations can happen. I appreciate any time a guest is willing to be any kind of vulnerable and open up in any kind of way. Um, you know, it means a lot. So I, I really appreciate it. Of course, man. Cool. Josh, you want to take us out of here? No, I did the intro. I want you to take us out. You sound okay, so much better fine. doing it. I don't know why I just now did a vocal warm-up to clear my throat after three and a half hours of recording, but that just happened. So, thank you so much for listening. We genuinely appreciate it. Uh, We will see you in two weeks with our next movie, which is TBD, or previously announced two minutes ago. I don't know what's going to happen. But until that time, please, I beg of you, I'm in therapy now. Please be kind to yourself. If you're kind to yourself, then you can be kind to others. And then we'll fix this world. Thank you. Take care. Have a good night. Goodbye. Love you. Bye. Bye.